Welcome to the Bikes or Death podcast. My name is Patrick and I'm going to be your host. Uh, today I got to sit down with Billy Rice in his home in College Station, Texas. And uh, if you don't know Billy Rice, you're in for a treat. He's a super impressive cyclist, bike packer, endurance athlete, coach, and on and on and on. Uh, we have a, a really informative, in-depth, uh, and exciting conversation uh, we talked for over two hours, and I feel like we just kind of scratched the surface of all the nuggets of information and knowledge that he has in his brain. Really uh, grateful that I got a chance to sit down with him, and I hope you enjoy that. Before we get to it, I just want to tell you a couple of things real quick. Number one, I apologize. My audio equipment, uh, I had some technical difficulties when I was recording this interview, so the quality isn't as good as I would hope for, but um, the content is really good, so I hope that will make up for it. And uh, I, I just want to thank everyone for all the uh, feedback and the responses I've got on episode one. Uh, it's been overwhelming and appreciated. And uh, if you want to follow me or what I'm doing or the podcast, the best way is Instagram. I'm at bikes or death on Instagram. So that's it, guys. Let's get to it. We're live. We're recording. Close. Yeah, we're here. Uh, we finally made it happen. You're a, you're a busy guy. Yeah. And uh, so I definitely appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me. Um, yeah, so I just actually wanted to go go through. Today I'm sitting down with Billy Rice, and uh, he's local to College Station, uh, which is where I live. He just happens to live in the same town. So for people who don't know you, I'm going to just read some of your um, some of your highlights from your career. Uh, so 2012 Tour Divide, 2013 Tour Divide, you yo-yoed it. 2014 Trans Am and uh, 2015 you did the Tour Divide and you yo-yoed that one with your daughter I think and then you did Inspire or Inspire to Ride came out in 2015 2016 you started uh, the Grand Gravel 500 and then 2017 you launched the first American Trail Race and then you're also a coach and you have a real job and all that so yeah. my only question is do you sleep? I try. <laughs> How many of you are there floating around? How many Billy Rice's are there out there? No, it stays. It's it stays busy. But I mean, the the good thing though, I think about this community is there's so many passionate people that once you start a project, there it, it seems like there's ten or fifteen people that like jump all over it. Yeah, and are just as passionate, and they just needed somebody to like throw it out there. True. Well, it's interesting just how in life, you know, yeah, it just takes someone to start it. It's also interesting in this small town, we have so many like bike packers that are like hardcore doing yeah. cool things, you know? Yeah. Cause I bet we hit, man, I don't know. I bet we have hopefully 50 or 70 on the Grand Gravel this year. Uh, I hope I mean, so there's too. That, there's that much talk, you know, and every year, like, you know, the chatter kind of starts, but I mean, we got people traveling in again and yeah. I'll be there. There's lots of, yeah. That's right? just more people that can beat me. And <laughs> you know, but I think everybody's racing themselves. Really. Oh, I am. It, it's, yeah. you know, and if you're not, I mean, you're probably there for the wrong reason and uh, you're going to learn something if you're out there just, you know, to win or just to podium. Or yeah. Just to, you think that motivation isn't enough? Uh, you need something deeper to, to push you? Oh, I absolutely. absolutely think that. Yeah. What is it? it? And 
Oh, well, I don't think it matters. I think it's different for everybody, yeah, yeah. right? But when new clients call and they're like, hey, I need a coach, you know, and I ask, you know, what's the goal? If they say they want to chop 10 to Trans Am and they've never raced the Trans Am anymore, I'm probably not the coach for them. Right? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've got several pros and, you know, when they say, hey, I want to like podium Leadville, I'm like, <laughs> okay, well, let's do that, right? Like they know what that means. Yeah. Um, but I think for most people in, in no matter how high their skill level, uh, when they come out to do these ultra endurance events, if they're focused on something kind of superficial, like what place they're in, I think most of them don't really do well. Yeah. I don't feel like that's the culture for the most part. I mean, you it's know, really, by and large. It's, it's really not until you start shortening the distance of the races. Okay. So even on the Grand Gravel, I'll just throw this out to whoever's listening and generate, I don't know, ho- hopefully, I don't, I don't mean this in a bad kind of way, but I mean, this happens every race, right? So if you remember last year's Grand Gravel, we had a guy here from California and a hundred miles into the race, he was like 20 miles ahead. Hmm. He was, I mean, he went off the front, like we didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah. I wasn't off the front. You were off the front with him. <laughs> well, I had a crazy, had a, I had a crazy had a mechanical. Yeah. Yeah. Which really set me back. Yeah. So I caught Indiana and Trinity and we had a little discussion because he was pushing hard. I was like, dude, like, look, like, yeah, this Colorado guy's way out there. One of two things is going to happen. He's a pro from, we didn't, none of us knew who he was. Right. So it's like, okay, look, he's, he's a world-class pro from Colorado and if that's the case, he'll be having dinner in College Station, yep. and we're going to be out here for two days. There you go. Right? Like, and there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, he's coming from altitude. Or he doesn't know what he's gotten himself into, hmm. and the sun's going to go down, and it's an entirely different race, which is exactly what happened, right? Yeah. I think um, he finished like a day behind Indiana. <laughs> Yeah, it was way back. Yeah, yeah. I was so from where he it. was. I was, right. I was like doing my thing, and I, I didn't even see what everybody else was doing. So. Yeah, right. <laughs> and if, but if you come into the event to to be competitive, either with yourself and with your own, you know, kind of goals and timelines, then you do kind of keep track of where everybody is in the race because it's kind of a measure of your own performance. But in the end, it's really your own performance that you're racing against. We're all at different stages. You know, oh, I mean, totally. that was my first event. So yeah. I was in the, I just want to finish. Totally. You know, that was the category I was in. And then there's people that have been doing it for 10 or however, you know, yeah. you got Hal Russell that's been out there for a while. Yeah. And, um, you know, and so we're all doing the same thing, just at different stages in the journey or whatever. Totally. So, yeah. And I think, um, I think you have to be really aware of just what your own ethos is like sure. why if you don't yeah, know why you're out, out there, there it's gonna be a pretty miserable Step experience one. <laughs> I remember I, I remember one thing you said is that um, just think about this moment right now totally you know don't be thinking about the past don't be thinking about the future mm-hmm. and I got to tell you because you mentioned that in your uh, in your race prep meeting before the Grand Gravel and that one thing it wasn't the only thing that pushed me through, but it really did help. And it, it actually serves better or in, in your whole life where you're like, okay, yeah. just focus on this moment. That's the only one you have. Yeah. It's the right? only one. And so it's, it's a simple thing, but when you really break it down and, and you're out there and you know, it's mile 300 and it's 3am and you're cold and you're tired. Well, don't worry about all that. It's just this moment. Can I do this moment? Can I do one more? You know, right. and then you just, it's, it's just living in at this moment. At some point it ends. At some point it ends. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
Yeah, absolutely. Why? Well, uh, I actually want to go back just a little bit because even though we live in the same town, we know each other a little bit. I I don't know you great, so yeah. I'm curious how you even got into bike packing and maybe even sure. cycling. Yeah, so yeah. take me back a little bit. Um, so. It, I, at this point, I, I have a pretty good awareness of where all this came from. Okay. But in 2008, uh, the helicopter that I started, managed, um, put my friends on the aircraft because I hired them. Uh, aircraft crashed outside of Huntsville, almost on the Grand Gravel route. Um, and so killed all three crew members and potentially the patient. Wow. And so... I, but I still had a professional obligation to the job that we were doing, right? I mean, if, yeah, you know, if, if a fireman gets burned, like, you still have to fight fires, right? Like, I mean, you just, yeah. when you work in, like, the emergencies never stop. And so, I never really grieved properly after that event because the focus really was, you know, three funerals, a memorial service, and getting the aircraft back in service because it's the only one in the Brazos Valley. And so through, you know, basically from 08 to 2011, you know, I really had never kind of dealt with that. My background was mountain climbing. Um, I went to the National Outdoor Leadership School when I was 18 and had a lot of wilderness travel uh, and just kind of general mountaineering experience. What part of the world? Um, well, U.S., everything from Canada, um, Wyoming, all over the rivers. Okay. Yeah. And so, in Colorado, obviously, but in 2011, November of 2011, uh, I saw this insane movie on Netflix called Ride the Divide. Yes. Dude, the credits rolled and I was like, oh my God, yeah. I have to do, I have to do that. I had raced mountain bikes in high school with this little bitty bike shop in San Antonio, uh, who I still had connections with. I called them. I was like, oh my God, like Alan was the owner. I'm like, dude, I, like I've seen this movie. I have to do this. <laughs> I don't have a bike. Did he know the movie? He was familiar. Yeah. Okay. And, um, and he's like, oh, okay, of course. Right. So got on a bike that was November and I was on the start line in June. Yeah. Like whatever, six months later. How does that happen? Oh, I just knew I had to do it. I didn't know what would happen. Dude, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know. How did you train? I just rode my bike around for like six months. Define ride your bike around. Like, Well, I mean, I would just go out like on the weekends or whatever. I, I would just go ride like to Navasota. Or, I didn't even know the good roads. Like I didn't even know there were dirt roads to Palestine and back. I didn't know. Yeah. I would have ridden those. I literally rode up and down like I the was, Highway 6 feeder road. Yeah. Like I didn't know. Um, how many miles were you putting in? Do you, do you know? You know, they were all garbage miles looking back. Right. But it, they were what they were. And I was doing what I thought I was supposed to be doing. Um, but, I, but probably getting close to the race. I mean, I was doing hundred mile days, uh, in tennis shoes and flat pedals, yeah. you know, mountain bike that I probably wasn't set up right. Like I didn't know. So you went all in, you saw the movie in 2011, you went all in in totally. 2012, you were there and you finished. 25 days. It was, yeah, I was the 50th percentile guy, right in the middle. Yeah, right in the middle. There's yeah, nothing wrong totally. with that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, to be honest, I'm kind of impressed that you've been finished. Like, what, so we were talking about your personal ethos and your drive that gets you. Well, so, what, you know, being six months into cycling, what was your, what was your drive to I get you that? It's not just cycling, though. I think, right. right? Like, it's the adventure, it's the journey, it's 
I mean, cycle, the bike is just the, the mechanism in front of you, but the, the wilderness travel, the extended time in the outdoors, like I had all that. So none of that bothered me. Yeah. Um, and I'll tell you, like, you know, Canada was insane because I didn't, I mean, I was like, oh my God, what have I done? Montana was horribly painful. Um, it was a big snow year. It was Richmond Peak and it's full on snow, icy craziness. Um, you know, my, my sleep strategy was terrible. My food choices were horrible. Like everything was terrible, but I just kept going. Right. Like, yeah. And, um, I got to probably the basin, I guess, or Northern Wyoming maybe. And, uh, man, it just clicked. And I, it, it, actually, no, I know exactly where it happened. It happened in Helena, Montana. Um, I slept in Helena and behind a dumpster with all these like urban heathens and like, I didn't sleep at all. Right. I mean, like I thought I was going to get like robbed all night. It was like the worst choice ever. Yeah. Why'd you stop there? Man, I didn't know anything. (laughs) I didn't know anything. Yeah, it was terrible. (laughs) And the next morning was, is the uh, Grizzly Gulch climb. Mm -hmm. Um, and man, it just clicked totally. I was like, I don't know what happened, but I was like, oh my God, I'm hooked. Wow. Uh, still didn't know what I was doing, but man, I was having a good time doing it. Yeah. And, um, somewhere in New Mexico, when I realized that it was going to end, um, it's like, I, I could have yo-yoed that year. I could have, I could have turned around and gone back to Mexico, to, to Canada. Yeah. Didn't for obvious reasons, but easily mentally, man, I was hooked. I was what like, physically, oh my God. How did your body respond to the first time around oh, 25 yeah. days on a bike? I lost 25 pounds. Yeah. 25 pounds. I don't doubt it. It's 25 days. No, my my food choice was terrible. I mean, it just, I didn't sleep. Like, it was terrible. How long did it take before you could walk again? (laughs) Yeah. Well, the bigger problem is uh, I actually went into refeeding syndrome uh, that year after the race. I got super, super, super sick. Yeah, it only happens to, like, starving people. Okay. POWs, yeah, um, and a handful of Tour Divide athletes that lose too much weight. And so what happens? Well, I mean, essentially your body, um, has a a metabolic problem where it's in horribly simplistic terms. Um, you're utilizing fat stores, you generate massive electrolyte imbalances that you just can't correct. And so then when you reintroduce food, those electrolyte imbalances aren't corrected properly because your body essentially just doesn't know what to do with it. Um, and Man, it can like really kind of throw you into some cardiac dysrhythmias and all kinds of really pretty substantial problems. Yeah. Um, I had massive just gastrointestinal problems for weeks. Like it was just hard to keep food down. Like your body almost just kind of wants to keep losing weight. It was horrible. Yeah. I mean, it hasn't happened again since. Riding your bike for 25 days is going to take a toll, especially Especially if you do it bad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, there's probably a lot of room that I could learn to, uh, that I could learn from and, and, and do better. But I mean, even after doing the four days on the grand gravel, I mean, I think it took a year before my foot operated somewhat normally again. Um, so yeah, you alluded to the yo-yo in 2013. Yeah. Well, I knew I needed to do it again. 
And so I struggled with, uh, do I just go back and try to go faster? I didn't really feel like I had the athletic prowess to like, I don't know. That that just didn't feel right. Like I I didn't think, I thought it was hard to be mentally motivated to just repeat my performance from the year before, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, if I thought I could go out and do, I don't know, 16 days, which was fast back then, um, I could probably be motivated to do that, but I didn't think I had the knowledge or experience to pull that off. And somebody had mentioned to me, and actually during the 2012 event, somebody mentioned the yo-yo and in my head, someone that year was going to turn around and do that. And it, of course, didn't happen. In 2013 uh, was kind of a magical year uh, as far as weather conditions, because the real challenge with doing a legal yo-yo on the divide is that you have to time it so that you don't have snow up north and you don't have fires down south. That's a real, that's tight. Okay. And a lot of people don't realize just how tight that is. But look at every year that the Tour Divide gets detoured for fires in New Mexico. Well, if yeah. you get detoured, it's an asterisk. I mean, who wants to go out there for a yo-yo with an asterisk? <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, that's <laughs> tough, right? I mean, I guess some do. Um, but that, it just, 2013 lined out. My company was hugely supportive and it just worked out that, I can make it happen. So you went so, into it with the idea that you might yo-yo it if conditions. Oh no, I was going to yo-yo. You were going to. Oh, I was going to do it. Yeah, and in fact, um, it kind of went bad on the way back. So uh, I was in Island Park, Idaho, in horrible weather. Like so, my entire southbound trip of that that yo-yo year, um, torrential downpour every day. I don't think I was ever dry like the entire time until New Mexico. Oddly enough, was all on fire. <laughs> um, well, by that time, there was enough interest in the Forest Service that they knew what I was doing and they knew who I worked for as a company. Hmm. Um, and I got to Abiquiu, New Mexico, and there was a letter on the door that said I had permission to go into Santa Fe National Forest. Um, and I was riding by closed gates with signs that said, like, $10,000 fine if you go past this gate. With an email that says, I had a letter. Or a letter. Yeah, I had a letter. Um, <laughs> You're like, hey guys, it's cool. Yeah, and it was super, super eerie. Um, you know, but, but there are big detours that year. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, you got to and, get it and, done. And I, yeah, yeah. All right. So at one point, you were the only person in the world that had done that. Is that still true? Do you know? No. So I think it was, was it last summer? Like I did it four times. Oh, did he? A yo, 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 yo. Yeah. Wow. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. He he's double, super, double yo-yoed it? Yeah, he's super cool. He's a teacher. Um, nice. And I I mean, I think they were all asterisks at some level, but like, geez, who cares? It's still um, 10,000 miles. Yeah, he's a teacher. And like, so he went out to yo-yo. And I think the objective, of course, was to beat my time um, in either snow or fire. I don't know. Something happened. That didn't happen. But then like, he still had time. And so he like... Turned around and went back. He's like, wait, things are still good. Oh, yeah. I was I was getting text message from uh, Kirsten at the Bush Mountain Lodge every time he went through. She was like, <laughs> he's back. Like, for the fourth time. Better check that guy's spot. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so, so super cool. Um, well, I didn't realize that it was such a uh, an elite group that had done a yo-yo whenever I was doing it. And honestly, like I said, it, it's, it's, yeah, yeah, it is. But you have to time it. 
you got it. So done. perfect. Yeah. Or you're just going to detour the whole time. So what else did you do different from 2012 to 2013? What did you learn from the first one that you... <laughs> Not <laughs> enough, honestly. I mean, I was stronger going into 2013, um, but... I really hadn't made the changes as an athlete that I had needed to make. Um, I mean, my time was fast enough, but it was really just, it was just fast enough, I think, um, because I was just always happy. Like, and I tell people this all the time. Like, if you haven't trained for whatever that race is that you're showing up for, if you're the happiest guy there, like, you're going to do pretty darn well, I can tell you. Yeah. Your mental state. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, And I loved every minute of it. And um, so... How do you do that? How do you, how do you, I mean, is that a trick that you do in your mind where you, you, you know, all the pain and you're hungry and you're tired and it's cold and it's raining, you know, it's all these things. I laugh and, a lot. And you, yeah. You I just, laugh a yeah. lot. I mean, you look down and your Achilles tendon's blue and swollen. You can't really get it in your shoe. <laughs> and I just laugh. I mean, what else do you do? Like you knew that was going to happen and yeah. like you signed up anyway, you know? Yeah. Um, you ever get mad at it? Some people use uh, anger as a motivator. That doesn't work for me. Yeah. No, I, I, uh, which is fine. Um, not anger necessarily, but you know they'll use some something. They'll get mad at it. Is yeah. what I always hear. No, I, I, um, I mean, you know what you're signing up for. Yeah. Right. You're you're gonna be cold, tired, and hungry. I have hours of recordings of my call talking about, you know, essentially planning for that guy, right? Because when you're cold, tired, and hungry, you're not the normal guy that, you know, we can sit here right now and dry, warm, happy whiskey, everybody's good, and we can make rational decisions. But then you get out there, you know, on top of Cabin Pass or Richmond Peak in a thunderstorm, and you're wet and cold, and all you can think about is food, or or whatever you think is going to make you happy at the moment. Um, and you can make some really bad decisions. Yeah. You know, you can let your mind go to a really dark place. I just, I, I once I start laughing, I just. That's one thing. I, I don't know. It all kind of comes together. Um, yeah, and then I'm able to just keep keep yeah. keep moving forward. If I'm ever suffering, I just start smiling. It's a trick that I, yeah. you know, if, I'm, if things are rough and I start getting a ne- negative mental state, right. I just try to put the biggest smile I can on my face yeah. and no one's around. It's just yeah. me out in the middle of nowhere and I'm smiling well, and I might sing a song. It, or it's, it's so interesting because the last year I've really kind of had to get away from cycling. Um, and we'll come back to, I guess, kind of where I made the transformation in my own athletic life. But um, man, a friend of mine is running a CrossFit gym here in town and so... Like, I was like, man, I, I just need something different. Like, I'm so burned out, life stressed, like Charlie. all these two things. Yeah. You know, I, Charlie? I live right there. And oh. so I see oh, your yeah. forerunner. Oh, forerunner I'm there almost every day. <laughs> oh, so, and you just keep going back. It's so much like racing yeah. mentally. Um, obviously, it's shorter. You know, we'll have like a 20 minute workout. They're like, oh, it's an endurance event. Like, it's a totally your thing. I'm like, no, <laughs> this, is this is not an endurance event, you know, but it's funny because it, you know, there's shared misery there, right? Like there's shared suffering, um, and the culture of the ultra endurance bikepacking world and that kind of that collective shared suffering exists in that CrossFit gym. And it's funny. So you'll be in the midst of whatever torture they've thrown out at you, you know, and 
again, like, I mean, I just start laughing or smiling or whatever. Yeah. And, and that cheers up the guy next to you who's on the verge of death. And you know, it, it, it becomes contagious. Are you motivated by that? Do, are you, is, is this like a thing that you're aware of where you're like, okay, I need to do this and I'm going to push myself as hard as I can and I'm going to yo-yo and then, you know, CrossFit to change it up and do something different. Yeah, and push yourself in a different I way. I think it's very much about learning mental control, mental stability. It has very little to do with physical fitness for me and yeah. much more to do with mental, mental growth. I think that comes with that. I, I mean, I have a degree in exercise physiology. Like I took every, you know, weightlifting class and I just, I can't go into a gym and do three sets of five or whatever. Like I just, yeah, that, oh, it's mind numbing, right? Now when um, you know you got a bike in the garage. Yeah. It's just, I, I don't enjoy that. Um, but the CrossFit gym definitely at, at the moment that I needed it really kind of gave me a, a good change to what I was doing and, and kind of a way to, kind of augment the, you know, the real training that I had been doing for the years previously. Yeah. So it was nice. Yeah. Cool. I want to go back and, uh, so after 2013, you did the Trans Am in 2014? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, this is crazy. You yo-yoed the Tour Divide. Yeah. And then a year later, you do the Trans Am, which is 5,000 something miles, 5,000-ish miles. The Trans Am... It was, I think it was like 4133 that year or oh, so. Okay. Yeah, it was, um, yeah. but close. Yeah. I mean, it was in the 4,000 miles. I was just thinking about how your body recovered from doing 5,000 on the Tour Divide and then, uh, well, we'll have to talk about, to, yeah, we'll have to talk about recovery because it was really, I, that was kind of the year, um, after maybe the yo yo year, or maybe right after the Trans Am when people started calling me. Uh, I think they kind of knew about my background. And people coming off the big races would come off with all kinds of crazy illnesses and injuries that they didn't know what to do with. And I can tell you their general physicians didn't know what to do with. Right. Um, I'll go in and talk to my doctor. It takes me 10 minutes just to explain what it is that I do. Oh, it's insane. <laughs> yeah. So, we'll, yeah, that'll be part two of the podcast. Okay. I'm telling you, you can go for hours. And because I deal with that all the time. Um, but, yeah. So, I mean, I was good to go. I was... Um, and, you know, in my own athletic progression, I was moving in the right direction for sure. Um, I was really motivated um, to, to be out on the Trans Am. Uh, obviously, I mean, the, the stakes were kind of high, um, you know, because I had met Mike and I had really kind of started befriending a lot of people in the community. We were all showing up in Oregon together. Um, and nobody, you know, wants to get up there and, you know, have a, a terrible performance. Um, and so I had done kind of everything that I needed to do to be there. And the race itself, obviously, it's in the movie, right? I mean, I break a bike and ride a mountain bike for a thousand miles. Yeah. It's a terrible idea. But it was really, at the time, it was like the only option that I that I realistically had. So for anyone listening, that's inspired to ride if you haven't seen it already. Yeah. Right. And what's really interesting is there was actually two broken bikes in my journey. Oh, really? And only, yeah, only one of them made the movie. Um, but I realized very quickly that the mountain bike was a terrible idea. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> you look was, miserable. Oh, it was a terrible idea. Yeah. I mean, dude, it was so... Well, you had a smile on your face, but you were miserable. It was so slow. Yeah. 
And um, in and that was in Kansas or something too. When oh, Lolo, Idaho, okay, or Montana. Right, it's right on the it's right Lolo on the Idaho Montana border. Like it was windy and couldn't get arrow. Oh, the scene where I'm on there. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's yeah, it's terrible. So I had another road bike at home. And it was not set up for ultras at all. It was like the state of the art because I was, I was sponsored by Marin at the time. I mean, so they sent me just all these bikes and man, it was like, you know, one of these carbon fiber, 23 mil tires. Like it, it probably would have been worse than a mountain bike, honestly. And, but they, but they sent it to, um, Rollins, Wyoming. And so I got to Rollins. I spent like two hours putting this bike together. Only to discover it was DI2, only to discover that when I pulled the seat post out of the box, they had ripped the wires out of the junction box, which is a press fit bottom bracket in the bottom of this $10,000 bike. Like, you can't get to it. Um, and so the bike was wow. completely done. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I, and I ride DI2. So a then they lot sent you on ultras? One? Well, no, I just had to keep riding the mountain bike. Oh. So Salida. Okay. Yeah. So from Lolo, that scene in the movie, I mailed my bike to Salida, the broken bike. Because Scott Banks was in Salida at Absolute Bikes, and I just knew he would make it all better. Mm-hmm. Marin sent him the frame, and so he put it all back together, and so I just had to ride it to Salida to okay. get it. It's been a while since added, I watched the movie. Yeah, it added like 200 miles to my route. Yeah. That was fine. What did you think about that? I mean, was was that your first road riding event like that? Going yeah. from you know going from the Tour Divide where it's all off road, and now you're around cars, and you yeah. actually got hit by a trailer. I think. yeah the the first day on the mountain bike, right? And my bars were like out, right? Uh-huh. Man, Idaho and that first part, like it's just like it's terrible. Like there's no shoulders. It's logging trucks. It's ranchers. Um, yeah, and so anyway, like, I mean, he came by, he was close, and he had kind of moved over, but then he moved back, but the back of the trailer caught my handlebars, mm-hmm. and down I went, but... Well, I'm glad you are right. Yeah, yeah, but it was horrible. I mean, but, you know, I didn't, uh, and I knew, because I made a, a comment when I did get to Salida, um, I mean, I, I know I made a comment to Scott where, I mean, there's just no peace on the road, mm. for me. yeah. I mean, it's just car after car after car after car. Um, and so... I was curious because I noticed you did it. And then, you know, the next year you went and did Tour Divide again. So I didn't know if you... I went back to the Tour Divide. I'm like, yeah. all right, I'm, but then I'm good I, with the road. You know, then we also, we organized Route 66 a few years later. I think that was 2016, maybe. I, said, I didn't even know about that. October? Oh, yeah. So maybe we, we talk about that. <laughs> we Yeah. So we, Brian Steele and I, put Route 66 together. Um, so we raced Chicago to Santa Monica on road bikes. Okay. Um, what kind of event is that? Uh, I mean, is it endurance? Yeah. Yeah. We only did it once and we're not organizing it again. Okay. Um, it's just a dangerous route. Um, and and all of the road routes are, and I just don't have a desire to organize a road event. I hear you. Yeah. Ever. It's just not, I mean, and honestly, of all the races I did, it was probably my favorite. To participate in? Yeah, totally. Why? It was Route 66. Actually, I was going to ask you which was your... Uh... Man, it, it is so hard. So we had four racers get hit by cars. 
Sub- like substantially, none of them died, luckily. Yes. But we had four get hit. Um, and, it, you know, it was a real massive challenge. That it's, it's almost hard to describe when you're on that old Route 66. It's like, I mean, all those old buildings and everything, like it's all still there. Um, so it's like nostalgic, man. Yeah. You know, the Trans Am, like you just kind of ride, I mean, you're just town to town and there's cool stuff on the Trans Am route. I mean, don't get me wrong. Yeah. Um, but the entire route 66 thing, you kind of feel this change in the nation because you're on this old route, it's still painted all these old buildings and gas stations that are still there. I mean, they're just shells, you know, I and mean, there's nothing there. Yeah. Um, but then you can look down and you're looking at Interstate 40. Like it's right there. You know, and so it's almost like you can, you're looking at a hundred years of the country's history as you pedal to Santa Monica. Well, that's one thing I love about bikepacking. We were in Colorado and uh, you see the old miners camps and, you know, all the stuff and you get a sense of history and what life was oh, like and the terrain and you're like, man, totally. I'm not here on like, you know, graded roads and everything's kind of nice and these yeah. guys are living out here doing it yeah such so, such different um, yeah I, I mean yeah i think you t- you talked about it earlier but the bike is just a great vehicle and that's mm-hmm. what i tell people so often because many of my friends are outdoor enthusiasts or whatever and you know all the bike does is allow you to get out there see more you're going at a pace where you can really soak it in enjoy it you feel it you smell it you're getting the elements so you know it's you're getting all that, but you're kind of getting to where you want to go a little bit faster, maybe. Oh, totally. So you get to see more. You feel it, you know, every turn, the people. Yeah, it's. Yeah. Each one is a special experience. Totally. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, um, and, and after, you know, after we were around Route 66, we, uh, we threw the Trans Am route together. Uh, it's really just a medium for people to to do it. The route kind of existed, sort of. It's like yeah. this weird hokey thing. Well, there was a guy, I can't remember his name, that kind of founded it and then the Swallows went out and they... There, uh, so there's like it. 10 different ones. Yeah, there's all different routes. Yeah. the name. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so... Do you want to talk about that a little bit since you are uh, the race organizer? and Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Although that's I'd a, say that's a new one. At this point, I mean, Indiana is the most passionate guy on that route for sure, like hands down. And, um, you know, the, the first year, I don't know, we had 14 or 15 people maybe. Yeah. Last year we had two. Uh, one dropped before the start. One dropped like a day and a half into the race. Um, and then this year, man, I don't know how many he's got, but it's, it's uh, there's some excitement around this year's. And so it starts on a beach in North Carolina, and there's no roads to the beach. I don't have internet. Oh, so there's no roads to the beach, right? So everybody has to be on the beach the night before the last boat takes people to the island, because it starts on the island. So if you notice, like the logo of the race is a pier. Like oh, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. So that pier is facing west. Okay. Off the island, right? Like, it's like the hokiest thing ever. And it's the cool, like, if you look at the picture on the Facebook page, like, it's just craziest. Like, the sun is setting to the west off the end of the pier. So if you were to just go off the end of the pier, you're going to Oregon. Like, it's pointing the way that you're supposed to go. 
So everybody has to camp out there on the island together in this big bonding experience the night before the race because there's no other way to get out there. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's super cool. And then a boat picks everybody up at 6 o'clock in the morning or so. Everybody jumps on the boat, and when the boat gets to the mainland, the uh, race is on. So as soon as you get your shit off, it's time to roll? Yeah. I like it. And where does it end? Uh, Battle Rock, Oregon. Anyway, yeah, it'll be on. I mean, it's just a big, it's 5,100 miles mountain biking. And it's all off-road? What what percentage yeah, I mean, of it is off-road? Like 100%? Or? I don't know. Uh, 90, <laughs> 80, who measures? Um, I always wonder that. Who does measure? Yeah, Whenever you get a bikepacking.com, it's like 97% That's single crazy. track. I don't know. I'm like, um, <laughs> the East Coast through Virginia is, or through North Carolina is a lot of pavement. Okay. Um, there's really no good ways to get around that. There's a, there's some stuff we're playing with and we're trying, um, but it adds a lot of mileage it, to try to like catch dirt routes that really are going north and south. Like right. Not, right. It's, um, so you just kind of have to suck up the beginning and just ride the roads. Until so what, you get further inland. What do you have any events that you're you got your sights on? Like for I mean, do you think you might do the Trans American Trail race or eventually? Um, but right now, I'm definitely in brake mode. Um, what about Grand Gravel? I'll probably do it, and I have some secret plans oh. that that cannot be publicly discussed at the moment. If if I go out at all. Okay. Um, I'm probably six months behind in training. Uh, like, there's no way I'd be at like any kind of peak level performance going into the Grand Gravel, which is fine. Um, so we'll just have to kind of see how it goes. Uh, I had essentially a year's worth of really bad races uh, where I got um, um, like um, like pulmonary problems in Colorado on the Vapor Trail. Uh, I got massive bronchitis on last year's Grand Gravel. I mean, it took me like three months to get over yeah. that Grand Gravel race last year. Like, yeah. it was crazy. And I knew I was sick. Like, I went through five liters of water in the first hundred miles of the Grand Gravel last wow. year. Wow. Yeah, that's like, like it was so many decongestants. Like, it was insane. Like, I, I, I couldn't. And then once the sun went down and that, that cold temps hit. You're done. Oh, I was done. Like it was, it was really unbelievable. Well, I, were, I couldn't pedal. You I probably mean, don't remember, but after Indiana finished, uh, well, you do remember that y'all would drive around and you were oh, yeah. on yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Y'all, y'all caught up to me yeah. actually right after Groveton Road. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were, you were legitimately sick. Like, <laughs> you, was, need be, you need to be in bed right now. It was now. insane. Why are man. you out here? You're getting Indiana sick. He's riding around the car with you. <laughs> it was, it was just too much. Um, and even on the divide last year, so that was three races. I got pneumonia on the divide, um, high altitude pulmonary edema on the vapor trail. Which are you familiar? I'm not. I was actually about to ask. Oh uh, yeah. So the vapor trail is uh, it's a race out of Salida, Colorado. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> There's basically, I guess, four passes. They're all twelve and thirteen thousand feet. It's 125 miles. You start at midnight. And there was one guy on the start list that was not from Colorado or New Mexico. <laughs> Let me guess, it was Billy Rice. Oh, yeah, totally. They were like, oh, yeah, you can come race. <laughs> we'll take your money. Oh, yeah. Well, and, you know, the organizers are friends of mine. And Who puts that one on? It was an absolute bike shop there okay. in Salida. Cool. Um, 
And, you know, just so that went bad. And then the Grand Gravel. And so at some point you wake up and you're like, I am fighting the universe. Like, <laughs> the universe does not want me out here right now. Yeah. Um, and just t- too much stress. And from a kind of an athletic performance perspective, carrying work stress, life stress, and then you're trying to train and you add that the physical stress of training on top of that, your body can't deal with all of that. And we, we're smart now. We know how to grow athletes. We know how to measure athletes. We know, we know, and I was just ignoring everything that I was looking at and still going out there. And so finally this year, probably, I don't know, six months ago or so, I was like, I kind of set some rules out for myself as to how I was going to train, what I was willing to sacrifice, what I was not willing to sacrifice for training. And if I happen to be in race shape come whatever race day, then I'll pedal and I'll race. And if I'm not, like, that's okay too. It makes sense. I mean, I started out by asking you if you sleep. And I mean, I do now. That's like a legitimate (laughs) question. Yeah. as I, as I was doing research and homework on you, I'm, when does this guy sleep? Because you're working and I mean, all the things I talked about, all the races yeah. that you've done and you're also, um, coaching yeah. and you're going to events and you're speaking. And I mean, I, I, I legitimately don't know how, yeah. No, do you want to, I'm curious yeah, because no, like successful can... people who can accomplish these things are also able to do time management really well, yeah. you know? Um, and it's something that I think we can all improve on. So sure. kind of, if you want to peel back the curtain a little bit. Yeah. So in my, I guess, I don't know if you call it real life, professional life, whatever. Um, I've, I've always hired people and surround my people or, or myself with people who know more than I do about something. Like if I'm not going to learn from the people that I'm hiring, then those aren't really people that I want on my team. Um, so I have a really high functioning self-supportive team um, and we communicate in a very unique manner and it's, man, it's just, you just can't control the outcome. Like they just go from a coaching perspective. I tell athletes when they sign up, I'm like, you have to be more vested than I am. Like, I mean, I just throw that out there. I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm busy. Like, I would love to help you. Some people I would love to help. Some people I don't, um, but the more they bug me and reach out to me, the more that they're going to get out and, and I'll, and I'll respond that way. If, um, they're going to be totally like the type B athlete and they just want to plan and I can make them a plan, but then I never hear from them again. Like, it's just not worth my time. Like we're not going to do very well. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the other piece of it, which a few years ago, um, one of my really, really good friends who's a PA, he does uh, urology, sports endocrinology for a clinic in Austin, we partnered. And so we then expanded into my, my original goal was taking the athletes I was coaching and taking over all of their medical management. Because if you want to make an athlete fast, or if you want to be fast, you cannot follow some national guideline on being fast. You, you cannot like, you need to eat this and you need to sleep this way and you need like to take these supplements. It doesn't work that way. Like yeah. you can do all that crap. And it's not gonna make a bit of difference, but everybody does that. Right. I mean, there's some national guideline on how to eat or you go to the gym and everybody says you should work out this way or you should eat this way or you like, 
I'm hesitant to say anything, but I mean, my initial thought is that we're all different. You know, anytime I think Dude, about like, so at some any point, national guideline for anything, whether at, it's education or health Dude, or whatever, it's, it's like unbelievable. So it, it branched out very quickly. I was getting approached by people who were like, I, I get, I totally get what you're saying. I'm all in, but I don't need a coach. Like, I just want you to fix me. <laughs> so I now have like more medical clients than athlete coaching clients. Um, what does that look like? Because that's really go together. Yeah. Uh, it's, because you, yeah, you have the experience of bikepacking. Right. And then your day job, your real job, uh, yeah. allows you to have more and better information, access to information. You're on the cutting edge of all that. So you can combine the two. Yeah. It's, it's insane. And so I'm going to publish a book eventually. Where I take all of the workups on all these clients that we've done with their assessment findings and recommendations. And I'm just going to blank it all out and publish it. And there will be 400 pages of recommendations with not one similarity. And just as we all look different and act different biologically, it's asinine that we think we're the same. Absolutely. Yeah. It's crazy. But everybody just assumes, well, I mean, underneath your skin, we must all just be identical. Here, take this medicine. Yeah. Your arms are longer than mine. My legs are longer than yours. But everything on the inside is identical. It's totally identical. Yeah. It's (laughs) insane. And I could go for hours and hours and hours. And it's so frustrating. And I get so many people that come to me because they've done everything that so-and-so told them to do. Give me an example of a problem someone that might come to you with. You know, my for, dad. Okay. So my dad was almost 300 pounds. Um, he went keto, full-on keto, which I think is probably good for 99% of the population. I'm a massive believer. He lost a ton of weight. He then entered a year where he had numerous medical problems. He had, I, I don't even know. He had like three major surgeries, four or five cardioversions. Like, it was a mess. And it, you know, so a year after prostate surgery, we go back to his urologist. Now remember, my good friend that I partner with is a urology PA, mm-hmm. right? Like, I'm, we're not going in with no information, right? And, and so my dad's urologist is a fantastic guy. He's a good surgeon and he's a good surgeon, but I'm not sure he should be doing hormone management. And so by this point, a year after all of this madness, my dad's on a gazillion cardiac medications. Uh, he's almost got full-blown dementia. Like it's kind of out of control. Um, and he's now unable to lose weight. He's unable to exercise because of it, right? So you go to your cardiologist and they hand you a beta blocker and a calcium channel blocker and an ACE inhibitor. And then they're like, hey, you need to go exercise to lose weight. And you're just like, but, but you just, I can't get my heart rate above 60. Like, how do you want me to exercise? Like, yeah. It's insane. Yeah. But that's the national standard. That's the guideline. Right. It's crazy. Um, so well, that's a whole nother topic if we're going to talk about pumping drugs into. It's crazy. Patients. So I had to, we had to fire my dad's urologist. I had to move him into the clinic in Austin. We yeah. had to take over all of his medical management. We had to reprogram him hormonally because he had been destroyed from the year previous. He then got to go into his cardiologist's office and be like, look, I understand that you're trying to be helpful and you're following this guideline, but I'm not doing it. 
I don't know, he's down 40 or 50 pounds now. He's acting like a 40-year-old. He drives to Colorado once or twice a month. He's building barns and digging ditches. And, like, he's he's back. He's, like, normal. Um, you know, then I, I get the... Well, what... Middle what, age... What did you do for him? Well, so when we assess athletes, you have to understand that we don't do it from the perspective of your normal physician and I have so many friends that are physicians who's listening. I don't know, whatever. Physicians are trained to be disease oriented and there's some real broken pieces of medicine. You know how much nutrition training a physician gets in medical school? I know it's very, very limited or not. Oh, there's none. Yeah. No, there's none. I've heard that it's, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> there's no training on environmental exposure, on essentially what's destroying the population. I don't believe there's some big crazy conspiracy to keep everyone sick so the drug companies can like just keep making bazillions of dollars. Yeah. But they are making bazillions of dollars and you are staying sick. So the national standard is not working. And so if you find physicians that are not looking to make you better or well, but they're looking to make you amazing, think of Popeye, the cartoon character. This is, this is, this is the one I give everybody. Right. When they come to me, I'm like, oh, look, think of Popeye. How old was he as a cartoon character? Like, I don't know. I mean, take a guess, right? He's 50, maybe 40. And he's freaking ripped. Yeah. Right? Like, he didn't have a beer belly. He's a cartoon. He is, but he's also our great-grandparents. Uh, they drew him in their own image, you think? They totally did. Yeah. And sure, they exaggerated some traits, but yeah. those traits existed. They they knew enough to be able to take a grandfather and turn him into a character like that, whereas now you wouldn't even think about doing something. Yeah, Homer Simpson. Yeah. Homer yeah. Simpson yeah. is the Popeye of our generation. And he was so popular, or he, was, he resonated with so many people that he became what he is now, right? Right. Because people relate to that. Right. It, you know, so I, I often then, you know, how do people die today? Heart disease? Diabetes. Heart, heart disease and cancer, and they die in a nursing home. Okay. And it's horrific. Like, yeah. This, my dad passed away of cancer. So it's horrific. Yeah, like, it's just, just go down the street to your local nursing home yeah. and take a look. Yeah. When did heart disease and cancer become the number one and number two killers in the United States or in the world? Do you know what year? 50s. 60s. That happened. It happened in the 70s. Okay. But 20 years before, in 1950, is where the problem started when Eisenhower had a heart attack. Mm. Eisenhower had a heart attack and the government came to the rescue and they said, stop eating fat. So here's my disclaimer. Everything here is entertainment value only. I'm not your physician. <laughs> Plus we already said that everybody's different. So that is true. Well, I think part of it is, I, I mean, I want to give people a taste of what it is that, you know, where you're coming from and your approach. And so that well, this know, is so it. If, so, yeah, exactly. That, that's this what is, this is for. This is to so, inform people to where if they want to reach out to you, they say, hey, yeah. I need that. So 
everyone's, you know, kind of knows the story. I think everybody stopped eating fat 20 years later, heart disease and cancer became a thing. There's this very naive viewpoint that we're just living longer. Right. I mean, we just, we just, we just lived longer. Right. So now we have heart disease and cancer. Oh, definitely to worry about. That. Yeah. Until you deal with a 34 year old having a heart attack. Yeah. We're not living longer. There are disease processes that now exist that never existed before. Let's go back to George Washington. What was George Washington doing a month before he died? Chopping an apple tree? <laughs> he was riding his horse across Virginia. Yeah. He got pneumonia and he was dead a month later. He was totally healthy right up until he got critically ill and was dead a month later. Okay. Today... Man, like that doesn't happen at all. Nobody's healthy up till a month before they die. They're, man, they're decrepit and they got a broken hip and they got recurrent UTIs and they got dementia and I, and don't even get me started on cancer. Or, or I kind of want to. <laughs> so yeah, okay, so yeah, so we can go there too. So. What I re- and so we'll come back to cancer because I, yeah. I can talk about that all I mean, day I'm not your oncologist and I'm, I'm not, I'll just tell you what I would do if I were diagnosed with cancer today. That's all I can tell you and you can do whatever you want to do with that information. It, but so we know that what people are doing doesn't work. And once you acknowledge that the national standard doesn't work, well, then you can open your mind to where are people really different? And why is it that ketosis, nutritional ketosis works for one person and doesn't work for another? I have a theory that I haven't validated, but we'll come back to it. And so we started testing athletes and there's a handful of these companies that'll do this. Um, and they're getting better every day. We get better every day, but dude, the success stories are impossible to ignore. You know, we'll get, you know, the, the 35 or 40 year old female who's been hundred pounds overweight her whole life. Um, she's at the CrossFit gym every day, <laughs> you know, not losing weight. And then somebody's going to be like, Oh, well, cause her heart rate's wrong. You know, and you're supposed to exercise at this heart rate, not that heart rate. And, um, got to tell you, like, it doesn't matter. You know, and somebody else will be like, oh, well, she, you know, she's got to change her diet. Uh, it's, uh, you know, she, she ate too much or she didn't eat the right thing. I'm going to tell you again, it doesn't matter. Okay. They're pumping so many proestrogenic hormones and proestrogenic chemicals into the food that you eat and into the environment that you live in that you can't fight that, right? And all you have to do is go to the the webpage of the American Farmers Association or whatever their name is, and it'll talk all about estrogen therapy and cattle, right? And they figured out, smart business types, that if you give a cow estrogen, you can feed it 30% less feed mm-hmm. and get the same fat cow. There you go. That's a 30% profit. Totally, right? Chicken's even worse. And, and so if you eat commercial chicken, man, I love wings and more, dude. I'm there like three, four times a week, maybe <laughs> like they know me, but, um, man, that's not organic homegrown chicken. No, it's killing the population that did not exist in Popeye's day. It did not exist in George Washington's day. Yeah. Um, and so, 
So not only did the population get away from fat, which they needed, they became very, very pro-estrogenic. Their dietary fiber, most people don't even know what fiber does, right? They think it keeps them regular. Yeah. That's not what fiber does. Well, that's <laughs> definitely what I thought it did. Yeah, it's what everybody thinks. Yeah. It's crazy, right? You know, so, so they're, they're, um, so they're like, well, I pooed, so I must get yeah, enough, right? There. Yeah, that's not what fiber does. And so, you know, uh, their, their dietary fiber is massively lower. Um, and then you add all of the things that are prothrombolic from a cardiovascular disease standpoint, from the sedentary lifestyle, stress, um, regular medication use, things like Prilosec, um, of course, smoking. And, and there's this big list of things that basically destroy nitric oxide production and increase your cardiovascular risk exponentially. Hmm. And so when we take an athlete that I, I, don't, I don't want them to feel normal. Um, I want them to be amazing. And we kind of, it, it depends because everybody's different, but there's basically four different generalized assessments that we do of any particular individual. Plus, of course, a physical assessment, right? But I mean, I can pretty much tell from looking at most people where they are and almost predict <laughs> where their labs are going to come out. And there's a you really, could you could predict that I'm going to drink a six pack tonight. Uh, well, no. <laughs> it's so funny. Like, so there's a, there's a company I love. They're called the uh, nourish balance thrive. Okay. They do very similar work to what we do, okay. but they won't take you on as their patient. I don't think, and they're way more expensive than me and they're probably smarter. I don't mind throwing that out there, but, um, they've actually made a computer algorithm where you could go in and answer all these questions and the computer will tell you without doing the labs where your lab, what your labs are going to say. Mm -hmm. They say it's accurate and I can kind of buy it because I can look at people often, not always, and predict kind of how some things are going to come out, but not always. Mm. Man, I've, uh, I have tested some top tier, like regional CrossFit athletes and found Hashimoto's disease. What is it's that? Like insane, like I, complete I mean, thyroid been... dysfunction. Oh, okay. Yeah, my bad. Wife, uh, she has... You would think they were three hundred pounds, and they're going to freaking CrossFit regionals, and you're, you're you're just you're just baffled, right? Like, what physician in the world would suspect? I always wondered about that, you know, because are they just operating with this pain? Yes. And they just think it's normal? Yes. Because I you know, I don't know what your body feels like. And, and you don't, you know, don't know what mine. And, and you don't know what your body could feel like. That's right. Yeah. Right? And so, and this is what happens when we get done with people. And, uh, and I'll talk about kind of how we test. But we get done with people and like, I, I get people all the time. Women crying, right? Because they, they can lose as much weight as they want to lose. I get guys off their antidepressants, like, and I'm not their psychiatrist or psychologist. Like I'm not, we don't, that's between them and their other physicians. Mm -hmm. But when people get, get fixed, <laughs> um, man, their life changes. Uh, about six months ago, they published, um, some really smart people figured out that 90% of the serotonin in the human brain comes out of your colon. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. So then you think about all the people that are on an SSRI, right? The Zoloft, the Prozac, yeah. the, you know, all those medications. Well, they're on those medications because they're not making enough serotonin. Hmm. Well, where's the problem? Problem is in their gut. It's a, it's a, it's a gut dysfunction problem. So when we test people, 
and I, I have a few international folks that are tougher to, to deal with because medical licensing, right? Yeah, across borders. But we kind of know where the normal American is and where we need to start. So we kind of start with four basic tests. We do um, a set of blood work that will make any physician cringe. It's it's massive. It is, man, it's, I think our, I think we're up to like 76 markers um, in this. It, it includes, you know, all your hormones, all your thyroid hormones. I mean, you know, thyroid hormones, sex hormones, um, cardiac liver function, CBC, you know, kind of all the normal stuff. Um, but in a lot more detail, right? You know, so when we test thyroid function, the American standard is just measuring what's called a, a TSH, which is your thyroid stimulating hormone. That's not a thyroid hormone. I'm like, throw the flag. Like, it just kind of pisses me off. Like, they didn't test. <laughs> I'll get athletes. They're like, well, my doctor tested, you know. I'm like, okay, send me what they did. Mm-hmm. We're going we're gonna to do our thing no matter what, but send me what they did. Yeah. And, you know, it'll, it'll be a middle-aged female, you know, she's 30 or 40 pounds overweight, she can't get out of bed in the morning, the doctor tells her she's fine, and the TSH is normal. And then I have to spend 30 minutes of my day explaining that TSH doesn't come from your thyroid, it came from your pituitary, it's a pituitary function test, it's not a thyroid function test, it's, wow. it's like looking at the thermostat on the wall, well, I've got it set on 65, so it must be 65 in here. Wow. And you're like, well, no, it, did, it didn't test the air conditioner. It, you're my new doctor. I'm not a physician. <laughs> Entertainment value only. I'm entertained. But yes, we can. Yeah, right. So, um, and again, like I, and I talk a lot um, on, on thyroid function. I'm just because, sitting here going through my whole like dietary and everything and like, oh man. I Don't know. ask me I, any questions. I, I, you know, so why, you know, so then, you know, why are thyroid hormones even important? Why are sex hormones even important? Why are the proestrogenic effects of food and environment, plastic, um, mold exposure? I mean, there's just I, I, like I have this big list. Gluten. I have people that can never touch bread products again, right? Yeah. And we pick this stuff up. All of these things, essentially at the base level, are destroying their mitochondria. So we'll come back to that because I mean, really, everything is about mitochondrial health. And if you have healthy mitochondria, I mean, you have plenty of energy, your mood is amazing. And if your mitochondria are pissed off or dead or not functional, well, then you, you have the opposite. Hmm. So we do this big, massive blood work. Um, we do a urine test called an organic acid test, which used to be massively expensive. It's come down uh, quite a bit. It's still not super cheap, but it's, but it's achievable for most people, especially most people who will spend bazillions of dollars on a bicycle. Um, So, you know, it's within reach of most folks. And we essentially then can measure every single metabolite of your Krebs cycle, like your metabolic machinery. And so we can look and see like what pieces of your machinery are working, what's not working and why. And it again comes back to mitochondrial health. Okay. Um, We then like to have athletes DNA. Every once in a while, I get an athlete. That I was wondering want, if you doesn't want the government to have it, you know, so they don't they won't test their DNA, which is fine. But uh, oftentimes, DNA tells us the why, yeah. right? So if I have an athlete that has abnormal blood work or an abnormal problem, you know, it's like, well, maybe it's diet, maybe it's environment, maybe it, you know, we can kind of take guesses as to why we're seeing what we're seeing. But if I've got DNA mutations that explain your, you know, vitamin B metabolism problem well but there's the reason and yeah. the treatment is different 
Is that like the 23andMe that I always hear about? It doesn't matter. Yeah, 23andMe, Amazon, like, or uh, Ancestry. Yeah. Like, take your pick. It doesn't yeah, matter. It doesn't matter. It's now, all the same thing. Yeah, we don't care that you're adopted from Zimbabwe. Yeah. We, um, we want the raw data file that's on the back end of the website. Okay. So, um, yeah. So people are like, oh, I mean, I did that. And they told me I have a great, like, oh. <laughs> so that's not what we're looking for. We can... Yeah. We can pull the actual raw file of your Newsflash, DNA. Newsflash, I'm from Africa. Yeah, right. Yeah, we don't, I don't care. <laughs> um, and then the other one that we are doing, and most people in these tests are getting better every day. Uh, there's about 100 papers a day right now coming out on the gut biome. Just oh, the yeah. gut biome. Yeah. 100 papers a day. You can't wow. keep up. I, people call me all the time. They're like, you have any books you recommend on all this information? I'm like, well, there's not one. And there's not going to be one for a very long time because it's, you can't. As soon as you publish, like the information is so new that you can't keep up. But I'll give you some things that we know about your poo and about your colon um, and how this relates essentially to your mitochondrial health and and your wellness. And and so I talked about serotonin. I mean, it's totally fresh. That's six months ago. Um, They're doing fecal transplants in mice now, in the lab mice. And so... They can take poo from a skinny mouse, stick it into a fat mouse, and the fat mouse gets skinny. Whoa. And vice versa. Okay. What does that mean? Oh, it means everything, right? Like, I mean, I see the potential, but I mean, what does that mean? Because you were talking about the, uh, the overweight girl that would go to the gym and she does this and she can't lose weight. She does that. She can't lose weight. So yeah. So totally like the, what are the bit? Why? Okay. So there's kind of the low hanging fruit on why people can't lose weight and it has nothing to do with what they put in their mouth for the most part. Whoa. Do I believe in nutritional ketosis? Totally. Yeah. That's the lifestyle I live. Uh, I believe in intermittent fasting. Like I do all those oh, things. Good. I do yeah. intermittent fasting. So I want to get to that one. Well, yeah. However, when you're looking at somebody that's done everything that they're told to do and they're at a CrossFit gym three to six times a week and they're not gaining, they're, they're not, you know, making progress towards their goal, um, there's definitely low hanging fruit. So vitamin D, sex hormones, specifically estrogen, testosterone, um, their thyroid function. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to tell you, in my experience, if someone looks like a thyroid patient, they're probably a thyroid patient. If their thyroid labs don't look abnormal, like you should keep looking, mm. like run more labs. Hypo, hyper, or both? What you're usually going to find in a overweight athlete is hypo. Okay. Hypothyroidism. Yeah. Um, someone with that, that is hyperthyroid problem is going to have a lot more problems. They're not going to have a problem losing weight. They'll be, I mean, they're going to be skinny yeah. anyway, it, for the most part. And that's, that's not completely true because you could have a thyroid and overdrive with mitochondrial disease where you have a, a metabolic disorder. Uh, so the, the mitochondria don't respond to the thyroid being crazy. Hmm. Um, and then of course the big one on the table, we didn't even know was um, microbial dysfunction in your colon. Yeah. So you have, I don't know, man, like 100,000 times more bacterial cells in your body than you have eukaryotic cells. Every mitochondrial cell in your body is a bacteria. So think about the last time you took that course of antibiotics that you thought were benign. I don't do that. Yeah, right? Like there, is a, there is a time where those are important. Like, sure. 
There's a time where you need those. So I, I not, not when you have a cold. Not when you have a cold. <laughs> but man, you look at the you look at the obesity rate in kids right now. Mm. Two things. All you have to do is ask them. I can tell you that if the kid was a C-section delivery, they have a 33% greater chance of being obese. Okay. And if they had antibiotics at any point in their life. And what you'll really see in a lot of these really obese kids is they've had multiple courses of antibiotics every year of their life. You'll, you'll have kids that have had one or two courses of antibiotics every year. It's a snowball. For their, for their sinus infection That's or their whatever. And now they're 12 years old and 200 pounds and nobody can figure out why. Yeah. Well, their colon's sterile. There's, wow. there's nothing there. And you can't rebuild that, can you? It takes a long okay. time. Yeah. Yeah. Like one course of antibiotics, even if you needed them, is like a freaking nuclear bomb in your colon. Okay. Um, these bacteria that are in your colon do everything. Like it, it almost is everything. Everything from building all your precursors of neurotransmission, um, serotonin, dopamine, norepi, like it's all coming out of your colon, yeah. right? It's crazy. Yeah, it's insane. And, you know, so there's this, uh, this idea that the, you all, it's almost a second brain, your, your gut. Right. I've heard that. Yeah. And so all these bacteria, they're communicating back and forth and they're totally happy when they're in balance. A bunch of teenagers at a party, like they're, they're totally fine. When they get cranky, either because you have an overgrowth of one particular species, or they're not being fed properly, then you get a gut disruption and you get a lot of problems. So what do these bacteria eat? This is important. Do you know? I don't know. Fiber. Ah, all right. I came around to the fiber. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so here's here's what happens. So let's say you eat eat that, um, you eat the big healthy salad, right? Okay. Fat loaded salad, tons of olive oil, tons of you know ranch dressing, and it's all on kale and broccoli and all this very fibrous stuff. Okay, so all that goes into your stomach. Nutrients come off the top, right? So you're going through your small intestines, and you're going to pull all the healthy stuff that's in the kale, and in like you're going to pull all that out. But the fiber it doesn't digest; it keeps going. Okay. It goes into your colon, and when it gets to your colon, it ferments. Well, what's fermenting it? Bacteria. Okay. All right. So you that fiber has to make it all the way into your colon for those bacteria to have oh, their nutrients for them in order to be happy and grow. Got it. You, yeah. You're right. If you eat the Big Mac, it was the white bread and, you know, whatever, half-fake meat. All that's going to come off at the top. quote unquote meat? Yeah, all that's going to come off at the top. You're not getting that. Okay. Nothing gets to your colon that's usable by your bacteria and they get pissed off. Wow. And you do that long enough and bacterial species will just die off. And that's the standard American diet. Is it low fiber? All that then? bread? Yeah. Bread is not fiber. I thought there was fiber in bread. Oh, like whenever you, because, buy because a, whenever, whenever you buy a thing of bread, oh. it has the thing that says fiber on oh, it. I know. Little, I know. And you, you bought the lie. And I, it's, I, I bought it, I, is, I accept the fact that I'm ignorant. Is and I there, know. Is, yeah. Is there fiber in bread? Yes. 
Yeah. 0.00 whatever. Compare that to the broccoli mm-hmm. or kale or yeah, you can go to the vegetable aisle and take your pick. I don't care which one you pick. Gut diversity comes from fiber consumption. And so when the American diet changed in the 1950s, fat consumption went down. But with it, fiber consumption went down. It was kind of like the, un, like people didn't notice. But when, you know, the entire food industry capitalized on Eisenhower having a heart attack, and all of a sudden you had all these pre ready to made, you know, microwave Betty Crocker meals in the grocery store, the fast food restaurants exploded. And in, in all of these things, um, no fiber. Mm, there's none in there. Okay. Um, so we need our, fi- what about if we take a vitamin, you know, you take your vitamin. Well, it's not fiber. You can't get fiber from a vitamin. Oh no. Okay. That's no, what I was wondering. No. So it, you know, it's, it's, it's only going to come from green leafy vegetables from, and they don't even really have to be green, but I mean, you know, read the label, but it's it's going to be the vegetable aisle okay. is where you're going to get it. And, you know, how many... How about avocados? Yeah. There's still a lot of avocados. Yeah. I mean, there's fiber in avocado. Um, not as much. I mean, there's actually there's actually quite a bit. But all right. I'll Google all the... I'll Google that later. Yeah. I mean, the most gut-diverse populations on the planet eat, like, more than 100 grams of fiber a day. That's a lot. Okay. Very few Americans, you know, are doing that. And so gut diversity is huge and, and we find all kinds of problems in athletes, uh, from specific species that are overgrown. And so if you have, you know, say clostridia overdose or, or overgrowth, um, you know, it, you now have like a bully in the colon that's suppressing other bacteria that you need and you need them all. We don't really know which ones are good and bad. Like we know that some are bad. But they also do important things. Mm. So you can't like just get rid of that whole species. You need to balance. And so we spend a lot of time trying to rebalance people's colons. I gotcha. And that's not one size fits all. It, it depends yeah. on what the overgrowth is. You can't just go take well, a sure. specific. And then you start talking about environmental factors or, you know, whatever yeah. else. I mean, everybody's living in a different area. They're consuming totally. different food. I mean, you know, yeah, whatever so it is. You can't so. just go to the grocery store and buy whatever probiotic is on the shelf. That's not the way that it works. And that's not going to suppress necessarily the bacteria. Like it's kind of a, it's kind of a delicate balancing act in some people and it can take months. Yeah. And then one course of antibiotics and they're starting all over. So do you just follow up with them with uh, continued blood work to monitor their levels, see where they're at, see what's working. I mean, yeah. So it's actually not, um, we don't get, Gut biome disruption from blood work necessarily. You can pull some of it out of a urine test, the organic acid test, mm-hmm. um, or we just mail their poo off again. Oh, there you go. Arm. Comes to your house, it's a box, you just poo in a poo box. In it, just put like the FedEx label on it. school all over again. Totally, send it <laughs> off. Yeah. Um, yeah, but for, for our higher end athletes, for sure, um, who may have like, they're 
salary coming from their job. Mm. You know, every six months or so, we'll do that. Um, for our normal kind of run-of-the-mill athlete, you know, they're working professional, their mom or whatever. If they're making progress and they're happy with where they are, I don't ask them to redo anything. Yeah. If, uh, do, you, do you think that we're all our own best doctor? I've always felt like... Sometimes we're our own worst You doctor. think so? Okay. Oh, my God. I, yes. It can be. We have the potential to be our best. I agree. Okay. Yes. Because I, I think the answer really is yes and no. Okay. It kind of goes back to that thyroid example. If somebody looks to me like a thyroid patient, they're a thyroid patient. Mm-hmm. And it just infuriates me when I hear a physician say, oh, your thyroid's totally fine. <laughs> My wife, not has, fine. my wife has thyroid issues, so and I know a little bit about it. It seems like it's hard for doctors to really pinpoint. There's a lady I work with right now who's going through a round, several rounds of tests. Or well, you could always send me your labs. I'd be happy to look and at least give you an opinion. Yeah. Um. But I'm telling you, they don't do it right. Yeah, I'm telling you, they I'm don't run that. They yeah. don't run the right labs. Um. And so. That's kind of that example of when a patient says they're doing everything, it's not working. You've got to have the right physician. <laughs> like, yeah. You've got to have the right clinician that's willing to, to really get to the cutting edge and find where the problems are. And, and we do it all the time. Well, it's, that's where Invictus, Invictus comes in, right? It is. Yeah. And you're, I guess we should say that you're doing this all under the banner of Invictus. I mean, that's your, that is yeah, your coaching company. It is. You do, um, ultra endurance athlete, ultra endurance athlete training. Um, and so you, you do everything from, uh, a training plan to the health plan and yeah, like it started, it, it really too. started coaching athletes. Yeah. And what year I'm, was that whenever you kicked that off? Twenty. You know? 14, 2015, yeah. somewhere in there. And then I partnered with my friend who owns Men's Armor Health in Austin. Um, and so we, you know, originally it was just these high, high end athletes that I was really, I like, I knew that I'd have them on a training plan. I expected them to grow and they didn't grow. Okay. Right. And so then what is a coach to do? Well, it pissed me off because in the coaching world, and I'm not, I'm probably not the best coach in the world. You can find better coaches. <laughs> but what I knew is the coaching, like, vibe of, well, I told you to do this workout and you didn't do it. You must not be sleeping enough. That's what it is. It's never make the sure you get, make sure you get more reps. There you go. Well, Example, I had a guy come up to, to me at the CrossFit gym this morning. He's like, hey, Billy, like, so he, he wears a Whoop band. Are you familiar with this Whoop no. product? I've been involved with a company called Whoop since they very first started. It is like a Fitbit on steroids. It's, un, it's unfair to call it a Fitbit on steroids. It, okay. it is the only fitness tracking device in the world that I recommend right now, and it is unbelievably amazing. It's always accurate, and so it's just going to piss you off. W-H-O-O-P? W-H-O-O-P, yeah. It has nothing to do with Texas A&M University. Yeah. <laughs> so funny. They're guys from Harvard. <laughs> okay. So, um, but anyway, so it measures your sleep. And it tells you, even though you laid down for eight hours, you wake up in the morning and it's like, you suck. Yes. And you're like, but I, I, I slept for eight hours. Yeah. So this athlete, dude, top tier, he's a regional, regional level CrossFit athlete. 
He's like, hey, so I've been wearing this whoop band for, just like you told me, for however many weeks. And I have no deep sleep cycles. He's like, it's not picking up any deep cycles. Uh-uh. I'm like, you're screwed. <laughs> like, it's, you know, it's, 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 it, so in his, but he's growing, right? So he's growing. He's getting better. He shows up at the gym every day. He shows everybody up. And he's superhuman and not getting deep sleep. It's a problem. It, it's only sustainable for so long before he he's right off the cliff. So I'm working with him to fix it. But then you get the other athlete that's not growing. And then the coaches just make something up. Like from experience, and some of them are very experienced, but they're like, oh, well, you're just, you should sleep more or let's change your diet. Or like they're totally guessing. Yeah. And so I knew there, had, there, there was a better way. And we had to take over the medical management of the athletes that were coaching if what they wanted at, at the time, this is what was in my head, if they wanted elite level performance, makes, I had to control their medical care. Makes perfect sense. Totally. Well, then it just evolved. And I realized, oh my God, it's not just the elite level athlete. Like everybody is screwed up. Yeah. Like, I mean, I'm just I, sitting here dude, gobbling I, up everything you're oh, saying. Oh, and I came out of EMS, and so I'm, you know, one of one of the uh, athletes that I work with is uh, he's a paramedic in a super busy, very progressive EMS service. But man, we just destroy people in, in that industry, and so here he's coming to me at you know he's like 32 years old and he has the testosterone of a 90 year old female. Uh-huh. Like. It, it, it's it's the world he's in and you know he's not going to be able to correct that on his own well yeah part of the problem I mean just as a consumer as an athlete as whatever I you know I'm sitting here and I'm like okay I don't know any of this stuff right yeah because I, I didn't grow up in a culture in a world in a society where uh, good information was was passed down and I don't know what it's, the answer is there because you're dealing with a huge population you're trying is. to like give them dietary information I can, and, and I don't even do it anymore right so so people are always like you know I'll get I get these people they'll email a call or whatever and they're like you know I'd really like to use you as a coach but I don't want to be keto okay oh, okay I'm glad I, I do want to talk about that yeah I don't want to Derail you? No, but no, no, no. We're kind of there. Okay, You're, you are keto. You've said that, but I, and I was curious if most um, days. I mean, yeah, but well, yeah, we need to back up and talk uh, and explain. And I, I have watched your. I don't even know. I think it's like a thirty-minute or hour-long keto rant stuff. Yeah, I've, you know, I've been on and and, and watched all. Um, and and I've looked into keto in a different uh, at a couple different times. But why don't you explain what keto is? Um, briefly, and then yeah, I was curious if you make if you require all your athletes to to do keto, or how does that work? So I don't require any athlete to do anything. First of all, I'll make a list of recommendations based off their performance, their history, their medical assessments, and then whatever they choose to do is like their own deal. Okay, right. So come. I don't know when it really clicked for me, but at some point I realized everything I had been taught at A&M in the exercise physiology department as an undergrad was wrong. Wow. It was wrong. Just because better information has come out since then or no. yeah, maybe, I don't know. It's kind of like how we were taught Columbus discovered America. It's there like, you okay. go. Right. He, yeah. In bread, I guess. I don't in know. Bread. And, um, and so I really, 
through, you know, the information had been there. It's, it's blatant. You could just, just do a Google search on heart disease and, um, stress level or heart disease and cholesterol, right? Cause we're all told if your cholesterol is high, like you're going to have a heart attack, but that isn't true at all. Like there's no link between cholesterol and heart disease, right. at least not. And I could do this for hours, but at least not total cholesterol and not the cholesterol test you get at work. Yeah. When you go to work and they test your HDL and your LDL and your triglycerides, that test is garbage. Is garbage. The LDL on that test that they ran at you at work, if you're listening, was calculated. They didn't measure your LDL cholesterol. Oh, and LDL cholesterol has no correlation to heart disease. Yeah, I've heard that. Just to shut people down when they start, they're like, yes, it does. My so Okay, no, LDL cholesterol has nothing to do with heart disease. If you're going to say that any part of... Um, it's not even cholesterol, right? Like we're talking about lipoproteins, which carry cholesterol, right? So the verbiage is even wrong. But even if we're going to go down that route, the only correlation between lipoprotein carriers, your LDL, and heart disease is what's called APOA. Um, man, and this, like, welcome to the biochemistry, I guess. But APOA is basically an LDL that's attached to what's called um, an APOA. And so the LDL and APOA is called LPA. The LPA is like a little spear. Think of it, these little spears floating around in your body. Okay. The more spears there are, the more damaging they are to the interior wall of all of your arteries. If you damage that interior layer of those arteries, your nitric oxide production decreases, you become very procoagulatory and you're going to have a heart attack. So it's the number of these LPA particles that are the problem. Got it. If you go into your physician and ask them to measure your LPA, you know what you get back? It's in a milligrams. Stare. Milligrams per day. Well, yeah. So if you don't get a blank stare, which is very likely, I'm, I'm just, you just, yeah. Testing all this out. You're going to get, what you're going to get is a result back in milligrams per deciliter. All right. So this is, this is going to be really morbid, but it's just the best visual that I have, right? So you go into your college classroom and there's all these people in there, right? Pick how many, but don't tell me the number. Okay. okay. So then you take all those people and you smush them into this big, like ground beef mass. And then you weigh that mass. Well, that's your milligrams per deciliter of LPA. Well, how many LPAs were there? Well, I don't know. If I have a big mass of ground beef, how many people were in there? Yeah. I don't know, right? Mm -hmm. Because they weren't all the same. Yeah. So they're giving you a measurement, but it's not compared to anything? No, I don't so know how many... Have no... I don't know how many spears there are. You're right. So that's not what's causing heart disease. That Now, if, if, if somebody wants to have the, the conversation with me that LPA is causing heart disease, I'm with them. I'm not going to argue that. Yes, it's true. But it's a it's a pretty small subset of the problem in Billy's entertainment value opinion only. Okay. It has more to do with nitric oxide production in Billy's entertainment value only. So drugs like Lipitor and Crestor are a major freaking problem because they're not treating the right problem. Um, in Switzerland last March, they produced a study where they had 43,000 men 7% of the 43,000 were being, they were, so they're all post-heart attack. They've all had one heart attack. 
7% of 43,000 men, I don't know what number that is, but it's a big number. They were being treated three to five days a week with Viagra for erectile dysfunction. That group taking Viagra had a 33% decrease in coronary artery events. 33%. Try to do that with your Lipitor. It's insane. Because it increases nitric oxide availability. Okay. Nitric oxide is, man, if there is the chemical of life next to like, I I don't know, it might be more important than oxygen. It's... Wow. Yeah, and, and, so and we would go hours on nitric oxide. Well, where do you get it? I mean, where, where does nitric oxide come from? So, it well, the precursors come from diet. The But the you essentially, inside all of your arteries and your veins, you have the very first layer of cells. And that very first layer um, makes, has a protein that essentially then makes nitric oxide. So you get nitric oxide production. Um, from those cells, it's it's even the I think they call it the glycophallite glyco. Um, and I have to go back and review my biochemistry, but the stuff that makes a fish slippery. It's okay, you got all the other fancy. Those words, cells, right? those cells on the fish that are making it slippery when you pick yeah. it up out of the water, like it's the same stuff. Huh. And so, if people say take Prilosec on a daily basis for their Stomach issues, well, guess what that's doing to their nitric oxide production? People who take Prilosec have a 50% greater increase in coronary artery events. Wow. They didn't realize, right? Why does exercise decrease coronary artery events? Well, it increases increases nitric oxide oxide production. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, right. So anything that increases nitric oxide production seemingly decreases coronary artery events. Anything that decreases nitric oxide production increases coronary artery events. Makes sense. When somebody hits me with a cholesterol problem or they're taking Lipitor or their doctor wants them to take Lipitor, I just ask them, why does sickle cell anemia cause heart disease? You didn't put them on Lipitor. Hmm. Right? Lupus, smoking, diabetes. Diabetes has a 600% increase in coronary artery disease. What does diabetes have to do with cholesterol? Nothing is the answer, right? Hyperinsulinia destroys that inner lining of the cell, thus decreasing nitric oxide production. I'm going to have to put a uh, intro on this one that says bring your thesaurus or Sorry. medical you, dictionary. I just gave you the, man. I no, just, don't apologize. I just it's gave good. you like the skim the surface version. I know. I spent hours. All this stuff is so good and, and it's it's important that people know that there's people out there that know this stuff and can help them with yeah. it. Because I don't, I mean, I, I don't know half the things yeah, that you you're know, saying. I spend hours with athletes talking through their cholesterol no, panels because... They don't, it, it's, it's just, it's well, not. Well, part of the problem is like misinformation. Like it is so. I mean, even you went and got a degree and the information. So much. And, and then, and I'm, you know, I'm not being ugly um, towards the physician population, but man, like, it's not a happy place in American healthcare right now. It's no. better than most countries, but reimbursement's down and what the physicians are taking on is more and more. They cannot be an expert in everything. And with the increased specialization of medicine, your cardiologist doesn't really care if you die of pancreatic cancer. That is not their problem. Oh, and they have 50 more patients in the waiting room. Yeah. So you get your eight minutes. If you die from pancreatic cancer, they're going to refer you to oncology. Yeah. Who also doesn't care what your cholesterol is or whether or not you're going to... 
they stay in their swim lane, right? Mm-hmm. And very few people are bridging the lanes from a functional standpoint. So, yeah. So what it's interesting for me is as somebody's you know, listening, I'm obviously a human and I deal with my own personal health issues and we all do. And one thing that I know is that I don't, I don't trust my doctor whenever I go in. Not that I think that he's a bad guy or he doesn't know what he's doing, but for a lot of the reasons that you've outlined and some that I didn't, most of them I didn't even know, but, um, that, you know, that guy doesn't know me that well and he sees me for eight minutes and how good of a job is he really able to do? Because all he's really doing is just saying, oh, well, here's this prescription. Here's a prescription. Here's a prescription. And, and, and so I guess what I'm finding really interesting is um, that it, I knew that there was a problem. I knew that, I mean, you hear, I listen to other podcasts and you hear a lot about the medical industry and yeah. here, you know, I've heard about the micro uh, or the, the gut biome. Um, and how important that is. Um, but it's like, okay, well now where do you go? Like, okay, I know that there's a problem. I know I'm not getting the good information. There aren't very many people to go to. Yeah. Like that, that's the real, that's the real problem is there aren't very many. Um, yeah. Do you think it's getting better? Do you think that like you were talking about the hundred papers a day, do you think that'll go somewhere or (laughs) Is it king? Oh, so oh, we God. have to come back to ketosis, but I'm going to go on a tangent All right. because yeah. we're, because we're here and I have a master's degree in healthcare. So it, is it getting better? No, the, I, I would like lose my job tomorrow. Um, no, probably not. Right. So the problem in healthcare right now, um, is evidence-based practice. So that sounds amazing, right? Mm-hmm. When you hear, man, I'm going to go to my doctor and they're going to treat me based on evidence. Mm-hmm. Sweet. Yeah. Until I publish a shit study then everybody thinks is real. Yeah. Now that study has become evidence. Yeah. Which is why Lipitor is the most profitable medication in the history of the world. Well, that and there's, what, 20... Uh, uh, what are the the lobbyists? Twenty lobbyists for every congressman. I mean, you're not getting so away the, from that. I, I mean, I've been involved with. Um, I know you're. I'm not a lobbyist. Out. I'm a educator. But man, I have been involved in the congressional process for most of my career. I know how it works. You're never going to get away from that. Hmm. Um. But man, like, yeah. So all you have to do is just, man. If you don't subscribe to Z Dog MD on YouTube. You should subscribe to Z Dog MD, man. Like I tell, I teach these um, medical students all the time. I'll go out to like A and Med School and I'll do we'll do lectures and stuff. And um, I just tell them to quit studying. Like, don't worry about their board exams. Just watch Z Dog MD. <laughs> Everything you need to know to be a physician in the modern world, you'll learn from Z Dog. Yeah. Well, talking about things changing, I mean, that's part of what appeals to me about podcasts. Is I mean, you don't have to go to a university, maybe, or you don't have to right. go see a doctor. You can listen to this podcast. And you can listen to a guy from like yeah. you who yeah. has a master's yeah. degree and has ex- like and completely. You're, you're a real world athlete and, and that completely, does this. completely unbiased, right? Yeah. Or as unbiased as possible. Sure. And so, one of the things that I do. So once we, I have an athlete tested medically. Once I have like their recommend, you know, their findings and recommendations. You know, I sit down with them for 
however long it takes, you know, two hours usually per athlete. I'll go over all their stuff and I'll make all these recommendations, none of which I make money on. Like, so whatever supplements I tell them to get, whatever dietary changes I tell them to make, whatever, you know, if they need um, prescription medications or formal medical management, like, I'm out. Because I'll tell them, like, you do that intentionally. Yes. You keep that separated intentionally. Totally. Because I'll be like, you need this medical treatment for the rest of your life. Yeah, that's good. And, like, I'm out. Like, I don't take any more money from them at that point because I want to be able to tell them as a friend, like, you're, you know, you need X, Y, and Z for whatever reason, whether it's, you know, hormone replacement or thyroid management or... Is you it hard for you to not go around and just fix everybody all the time dude, when you know, like, you have dude, all this information oh, in your brain and you're just like, dude, I don't, I need I'm like, over it. I'm you, over it. You just had to let it go. I had to let it go. I, I literally had to get up one morning and tell myself that I was not going to save the world. Yeah. It's not going to happen because they don't want it. They so don't what, want are, it. what are you doing? Is that, you know, is that where Invictus comes in where you're... Yeah, I mean... I'll fix the I mean, I mean, that, your real your real job. You you're in that industry and you're helping people through that. And then yeah, yeah even your personal life. Uh, yeah, I mean, so. I'll help the people that want to be helped. Yeah, but I see people like you can just see it. You know, walking. I can be like, Dude, your testosterone's two hundred, and you have a mold toxicity problem. Wow. But you can't tell them, right? Like you can tell me if you if you, you see me walking around and I look like I'm. You know, it's so funny. Three, yeah, seven. it's <laughs> it just. You just see it, you know, or you see the athlete at the gym and they're, man, they're there every day and they're just, they're carrying way more fat than they should. They're inflamed. Like, you know, people don't, people really have a very low awareness. And I want to come back to the ketosis cancer thing too, but yeah, um, I'll, I'll tell you man boobs and love handles, okay. right? So man boobs and love handles come and go. I don't know if you no, you know, whatever. Okay. So, the, but they do, right? So some days you'll wake up and your man boobs are bigger than they were the day before. I and don't then know. the next, pretty skinny. And then the next day they like go away. Same thing with love handles. Okay. And you'll yeah, hear people, oh yeah, dude. Like, so this is just one example. I have hundreds. I'm going to be asking my wife, right. am I but, bigger today? Yeah. You'll, you'll hear people say, uh, you know, oh, I, I ate too many carbs last night or oh, I'm bloated or oh, whatever. But those are inflammatory reactions to a chemical in your environment. If you live in Bryan College Station, it's almost always mold. Mm-hmm. I can take one sip of coffee now until there's mold in it. Yeah. By like, how you react to the coffee? Yeah, I can feel it. I wow. can feel it. Like, I've trained myself to feel it. Um, if you get jittery after drinking a cup of coffee, like your hands shake, that's mold toxicity. That is not caffeine. Whoa. 85 milligrams of caffeine in a cup of coffee is not enough to make your hands jitter. Perfect. That's why I drink five. Might do it. <laughs> but the jitteriness, the unsettled stomach, like all that, like it's mold in the coffee. Because coffee is very prone to, to growing mold. Like you should only buy whole bean, new, high quality coffee. You don't buy the pre-ground. See, you know that. Yeah. Man, there's so many things like that. So many things. Yeah. So then let's so let's go back to, to ketosis because yeah. there'll be people listening and they're like, I tried it and it totally didn't work. Well, well first, what is ketosis? Uh, yeah. So in our normal standard American life, um, the federal government wants you to eat like, I don't know, 60% carbohydrates and 
20 or 30% protein and whatever's left is fat. Um, the problem with that is you don't, you're not, you then, you're not very good at, at using fat for energy. There's so many caveats on this whole thing. So from a, just a living perspective, you're really good at, um, using glucose for fuel and you're really bad at using fat for fuel. And so people get hangry, right? And everybody's heard the term hangry, right? Oh, yeah. Well, that's a hormonal response to, to dropping insulin levels and you're a slave, um, to your, to your glucose of sorts. And you're taught to believe that if you want to perform in sports, that you have to have glucose. Um, and that if you want to compete at a high level, you have to have glucose. If your heart rate goes over some number, well, now you're in a glycolytic zone and you have to have glucose, which is just bullshit, right? Like, because I can get my heart rate to 190 right now or this morning when I hadn't eaten in 24 hours. Well, I mean, 190? Yeah, I could hit it. So 190 on anybody's scale is going to be glycolytic, right? I mean, that, man, that's... But I had been fasting for 24 hours. Like, yeah. I, like, so... I fasted this morning and it was my daughter's uh, birthday party so we were doing the jump thing, yeah, you know? Right. And, I mean, I got worn out but my yeah. heart rate was pretty high. So, yeah, the topic of... of you, of, of nutritional ketosis and athletic performance can, could be a four hour conversation on its own or more, but an athlete really kind of has to go through a lot of steps to, to ensure their body is ready to be in ketosis and use energy appropriately. So the first step is kind of like your baseline. Where are you from a metabolic standpoint? And so the normal American, we'll have normal Americans that go their whole life never in ketosis. And they're fat and they have no energy and they're, they're like every endurance athlete, everybody that's ridden the divide, everybody that's ridden the green gravel, whether they wanted to be in ketosis or not, we're in ketosis okay. at some level, hmm. right? You're, you're going, as soon as you start using fat for energy, your body produces ketones. Now, whether or not you can use those ketones for energy is, is like the second part of the problem, right? So there's two pieces to the whole ketosis thing. You have to be able to functionally break down fat into ketones, and then you have to be able to use those ketones for energy. Two-part problem. The first part is that the normal American carries what's called white fat. So if you never noticed, babies don't shiver. Like mm. a, a baby that's true. They don't shiver, right? Why don't they shiver? Well, they don't shiver because babies have what's called brown fat. The fat cells in a baby are different than the fat cells in an adult. And for a very long time, people thought that was genetic, that it was like a trigger. That mm. like when you went from being a baby to being an adult, the cell changed from brown to white and you never went back. No. That's not true. But but because we just eat glucose, glu you know, we have this very high carbohydrate diet. Um, you essentially the brown fat does turn to white fat. And there's nothing you can do about it. Brown fat has its own mitochondria and it's very efficient at cranking out ketones and being utilized for energy. 
So when I talk about brown fat to white fat conversion, I always talk about Navy SEALs because if you think about like a brand new baby Navy SEAL, what are they doing? They're rolling around in the beach water, right? They're doing everything. Yeah. Well, the, the image <laughs> that always sleeping. pops into my head is the beach, the beach. with the logs and yeah. doing sit-ups with the logs. It's not and, 90 yeah. degrees. No. Right? It's like cold. It's like 40 degrees and they're in the water. Yeah. Well, what's happening? Well, we know that intermittent cold exposure is the single fastest way to lose weight. No matter how much mitochondrial dysfunction you have, no matter how sick you are, if you're 100 pounds overweight and you want to lose weight tomorrow... Every day, go jump in your swimming pool until you shiver and get out. You will, weight will fall off. Your body just starts converting white fat into brown fat. You convert it back. Wow. You will convert it back. So, um, that, that, that's one way, right? So, so is that why Tony Roberts jumps into a ice cold bath every single day? Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's, um, Everybody that does it talks about that, and I didn't. I mean, but it's the first few times are horrible. Oh man, I've tried it before. Yeah, you know, it's not fun. Mm -hmm. But you got to shiver. You got to shiver. So that's kind of the first, the first, first part, simply. And then, of course, the second part is once you have the ketones, specifically. How long long does that take? I mean, I I realize it's probably different for different people, but oh, totally. I know to get into ketosis. I mean, what would you expect that to take? Oh, man, that's so hard to oh, answer. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Okay, so for a newbie... And then it's like, how do you even know you're in ketosis? Yeah. So for somebody new, um, man, it could take days. So the fastest way to get into ketosis... But, of course, then it depends on what you do. The fastest way to get into ketosis is to stop eating and go exercise. So say, let's say that you eat dinner tonight, you had a pizza and a bowl of pasta, and you washed it down with a great big Dr. Pepper. <laughs> the worst possible combination yeah. ever, right? I mean, it could probably take you a week to get out of that, but <laughs> for a, a new person. Um, but let's say that then you go, that, that's not this, that's not even really a fair example because a, a new person's just not, they're going to die. So let's, let's say that you are already trying to eat a ketotic diet, low carb, um, quasi healthy diet, right? And so you had dinner at like 6 PM. If you'll wake up the next morning and go get on your bike and go ride a hundred miles, if you were able to do that, you're in ketosis. You, you'll be in ketosis very quickly, even that day. The problem is people that are listening, especially if they've ever tried this, Oh, I go eat a big cheeseburger after I get done. Because I do intermittent fasting you, and I'll go and work you, out. But if you haven't done the if you haven't done the work to be efficient at utilizing ketones when you go to work out, like you're gonna you're gonna crash. Like you're gonna it's gonna be terrible. You're you're not only are you not gonna do well, you'll probably have to call someone to come pick you up. Because your body's not efficient at using the ketones. Hmm. For, so I actually walk people through a process now. Back in the old days, we would just tell people, no more carbs, like intermittent, like just start fasting, like jump all in. Okay, go swim three miles. I got like, and they, they would just be 
destroyed, you know? We'd be like, congratulations, like, you did it, yay! Yeah, like, I feel like yeah, you'll be, yeah, you'll be great in a week, you know? <laughs> or two, or three. Um, we don't do that. I, I don't do that anymore at all. I, I kind of stair-step people. Yeah. I think it's much healthier, and it's just as effective. Um, From a, you know, but just, for me, like, dude, I could eat a pizza right now yeah. and be in ketosis tomorrow. I've done it long enough that that's doable and every workout at CrossFit is full on fasting and rides on the bike up to say a hundred miles, 130 miles will be no food. I don't, I don't eat it. Um, my whole kind of eating strategy has really kind of changed dramatically. And a lot of people knew in the whole dietary ketosis thing, see it as a very restrictive form of eating. Yeah. And it, I guess it is in the first few weeks, maybe 12 weeks. But after that, man, I could do anything. I could eat a pizza today and be in ketosis tomorrow. I could eat today or not eat today. I could eat three days from now and still work out and still put on muscle and still be fine. It's interesting when you're doing these events and you don't need to eat. Or oh, do you three, I did 362 miles the year I won the Grand Gravel with no food. Yeah. Because those guys were like right on me, man. They were like right behind yeah. me. I couldn't stop. You pass guys when they stopped to get the burrito. In the yes. And then I never saw them again. Yeah. yeah. Um, so then that kind of brings me to another thing. So I was listening to a guy talk about some of the cutting edge cancer research. And I don't know, are you familiar with any of the arguments on cancer being a metabolic disease versus being a genetic disease? You Not really, no. Follow any of that? I understand what you're saying, but... Yeah, so basically the premise is uh, today, like the, 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 the accepted cancer theory, of course, is that it's a genetic problem, that you've got a mutation in the DNA, the cells don't stop... Um, replicating and of course okay so then you get cancer yeah the uh but some interesting things that the reason that's like the mainstream deal is because the people studying cancer for the most part are molecular biologists mm. and they're geneticists that's like that's that's what that's they're swim lane yeah well you have another group of people who are looking at mitochondrial dysfunction in cancer cells and it turns out that cancer cells ferment just like the bacteria in your colon. And if you pull the mitochondria from, and I'm not an oncologist, entertainment value only, save the hate mail. <laughs> but if you pull the mitochondria from cancer cells, they're sick. So, of course, the question then is chicken or the egg, which mm -hmm. came first. Yeah. Right? Well, I would argue. I mean, when did cancer become a thing? There's arguments I about that, you, right? Because 1970. Yeah, but there's arguments about that because you go back and you read like journals from, you know, and they think, sure. well, this person might have had cancer or whatever. Might have. Okay. You don't buy into that. Yeah. That's, they I probably don't know. did. The one guy out of 10,000? Yeah. yeah. He, he had. probably had cancer. Yeah. That but we're sense. talking everyone today yes you are going to die of heart disease or cancer yes or dementia like that's it that's the list it wasn't it. that before 1970 so and go back and find a guy that had it maybe you know maybe 200 years of course ago. he did yeah but nobody's arguing that yeah now it's everybody wow. now it's everybody wow 
Before 1970, what were the number one and number two causes of death? Uh, heart attack and getting Before hit 1970. Oh. Uh, uh, old age. And no, what does that mean? Uh, I don't know. Tuberculosis and pneumonia. All right, thank you. Heart disease and cancer weren't even in the top ten. Wow. They went from like, whatever, 12 and 17 to 1 and 2. Holy shit. Yeah, you can't. Okay, so let's go back to the mitochondria because the, I, I really think this connects to, the, to ketosis. Yeah, okay. So you look at these cancer cells. The mitochondria can't phosphorylate. So I'll, I'll save you your, for, you know, basic biochem. But, you know, basically we have, we have different energy production pathways, right? So we have, like, glycolysis and the ability to burn carbohydrates, um, but then we have the fat oxidation potential that occurs also in the mitochondria. The mitochondrial wall has to be healthy in order for that to happen. And if the mitochondria is sick, it can't do that. So cancer cells respond very negatively or positively, if you're the host, <laughs> to ketosis and to fasting. Mm. Because the cells, they need glucose. Cancer cells need glucose. Mm. And some people are like, well, only some cancer cells are glycolytic. And so, I, I don't know. I'm not an oncologist. What, what I read is that all cancer cells are glycolytic. They, they, they all have this fermenting... Uh, ability and they so they're not pulling fat in the in if the cell wall of the mitochondria is damaged or sick or depressed um it, it can't use fat for fuel so if i got cancer today they're like oh you, you have a brain tumor or whatever like i'm not going to touch a carbohydrate ever like i'm like ever and there's some really neat cases and there's some really man like so there's some fascinating um, neurosurgical research coming out. Some of them are single patient case studies, but they're case studies of, of patients with brain tumors that have like a one or two year life expectancy and they're at year five. Hmm. Like it's hard to ignore. Um, and then of course we talk about radiation. <laughs> it's just, it, it, oh, the rabbit hole is just so insane. Yeah. The way that we want to treat cancer patients in modern society when there's all this information that's like just right there, like a right about to come out. Okay, so what does the cancer cell have to do with, with the nutritional ketosis athlete? Okay. So we know that um, nutritional ketosis, for the most part, argue, if you will, if you're listening, is, is very damaging to cancer cells. Um, and I'm not sure that anybody would disagree with that at this point. Um, there's even like this kind of new, almost growing field of medicine called, you know, metabolic oncology, uh, where they're treating cancer patients metabolically. Right. Um, so that's huge, right? But then what do you do with the athlete that tries nutritional ketosis, whether it's for weight loss or sports performance, and they, and it doesn't do well, right? So they do the whole 12 weeks or whatever, and medically they're fine. Hormonally they're fine. Their thyroid's fine. Their vitamin D is spotless. Like they're, I mean, they're assessed and they're totally fine. 
which is totally rare. Like, I don't even know why I would say that because we find <laughs> crap in everybody. But for the most part, like, they're, they're squared away. But ketosis isn't working. They're not losing weight. Hmm. My theory... This is like Nobel Prize stuff here. Okay. Because right. be I've never heard this anywhere else. It's going to be... This is going to be called, like, the Billy Conundrum or something. I don't know. I'm going to have to with some better name. But my theory is... You have to have healthy mitochondria in order to um, utilize fat. Because again, it's the cell wall of the mitochondria that does all of your fat oxidation. If the mitochondrial cell wall is sick or damaged or the mitochondria are damaged, your ability to use fat is severely depressed. So if I have a young person that can't lose weight and is having a terrible time in ketosis, there's something wrong there that we need to fix. But if they don't fix it, my hypothesis is that they are exponentially more likely to wind up with cancer. Because it's the same damn problem. They just don't have tumors yet. Uh, Does it make sense? Like, yeah. it's a cancer cell can't utilize fat for energy. We know this. Okay. If I get an athlete that is struggling to be in ketosis or, or struggling, you know, they, they can do the ketosis part, right? They can cut carbs, they can fast and they do it for eight or 12 weeks and they just feel like crap and they don't lose weight. We have to dig deep in those people. Yeah. What do you do? Yeah. What do you do? Well, we have to find the dysfunction. Yeah. Right. You tell them your concerns. If you run across something like that. Oh my God. Totally. We need to. Oh, totally. I told you they, some people like what we have to say and some people don't. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally tell them. Right. Because what are the the big all right okay so what are the big ticket items that cause mitochondrial dysfunction do you have any idea I don't. what the guesses are okay so mold toxicity is massive okay and do I'll tell people this I'm like you have mold in your house and then you just don't look right like South Texas probably who doesn't right <laughs> Like burn it down. It's 100% humid in here. Sell it. Time. Like I don't care what you have to do. Like really? Yes. How do you keep mold out of your house? Well, it's new. Uh, <laughs> you I just buy a new house every year. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, for someone with a problem. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like. Um. Yeah. So that's huge. Gluten can be just huge. Go live in my tent in the backyard. Dude, sound like better. a good option. At this Bread, point. bread, and gluten. Can cause all kinds of mitochondrial havoc. Um, of course, all the micro, you know, micronutrient deficiencies. Man, the list just goes on and on. Um, you know, too much cortisol, lack of sleep, all this stuff is connected. Yeah. Um, but we can test it. We can find it. But if, if I've run an athlete through all of our standard testing and I know they have a mitochondrial problem, but I don't have a clear, I like mechanism for it. We will continue testing, right? Whereas in uh, someone that I'm like, oh, you know, perfect. Like your thyroid's jacked up, your estrogen's too high. Like you're, um, you know, you're not converting B vitamins. Like, okay, cool. Like we can deal with that. That's pretty darn simple. Hmm. But if we pick up a mitochondrial deficiency and something in your organic acid hints at a, um, a toxicity problem, like you're not detoxing. 
I mean, you could have a heavy metal toxicity from your damn filling from when you were a little kid. Who knows? Like, but we have to find it, right? So then we would end up doing, you know, it kind of dives into the history because these tests are not cheap, right? And your insurance, of course, doesn't cover them because they don't think any of this is important, right? Right. But, um, you know, but then we'll take a deep dive and we'll have to look at, you know, do you have a heavy metal toxicity? Do you have a mold toxicity? You know, we can really dig through some pretty specific tests, but you don't want to guess because the tests are, you know, right? Some of them are $250 a piece and that's just the cost of the test. Um, but if you're that person, oh, you pay that money quick and it's cheaper than damn chemotherapy or paying for right. Funeral. Like, yeah. So, you know, this stuff exists. Um, and you know, you just, is keto the answer to fix? There's no your- magic. There's no magic bullet, and, yeah. and that's what I was. I guess so many athletes are like, "Do I have to be keto?" Well, no, you don't have to be keto. Um, but you're really against bread, gluten. I am very anti-bread. Yeah. For I don't I don't miss it. I don't like it. I um, love bread. Well, I did. I'm curious. The love is a hormonal addiction. Ah, oh, there we go. Yeah, it, it really is. It, it is. Um, I believe I that. I don't eat sugar. I don't. Um, but I understand that's an, I mean, that's a drug. That's an addiction. But bread is sugar. Okay. Well, you just caught me lying. See, that's, People that's don't how know. They don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah they don't know. Yeah. yeah. So, so like, I don't eat sugar. Well, you eat bread. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And there's, and there's different sugars in this. Man, again, uh, this goes for hours and hours, but I love, uh, so I'll see people after a workout, right? It's a CrossFit gym, right? So 90% of them believe you're supposed to have a pre-workout something and a post-workout something. And here I am, I'm like, I need in three days and I just did more muscle ups than you or whatever. Fruit. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't understand what fruit is or what fruit does or where fruit fits into their diet. Um, and I have lots of thoughts on fruit and why it's just not what you think it is. Um, but I'll always see, you know, like some athlete, like with a banana after class, you know, and I don't see anything to them, but you know, it's like, okay, why are they eating a banana? Cramps. Oh yeah. So cramps. That's why. Oh God. Okay. So I wasn't even going to go there. So cramps don't come from an electrolyte disturbance. Number one, it doesn't happen. That, that, That is not where... It's just a myth. I, I just, I can't even, that's all. Where does it come from? Quickly, maybe. The, the nerve, the neurons are not used to the signals that they're sending essentially. And you have an electrical, electrical disturbance in the neuron itself. Okay. Which is why when you increase your mileage, the nerve cell becomes hypoxic, inflamed, whatever terms you want to use to describe the physiology there. Um, and it becomes very hyperactive. Firing when it shouldn't fire. And that gives you a cramp. So, okay, so do you know what the most, the most studied diet in the history of the world is? Standard American diet? No. Um, that one of the tribe that lives in no, this. No, no, Okay. Ketosis. Okay. Nutritional ketosis. And so it kills me when people are like, there's no research on long-term effects of ketosis. I'm like, oh my God. It's the most studied diet ever. 
How long has it been around? Man, like, dude, since, like, Hippocrates. Really? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, you know, that's interesting. Because <laughs> one thing I was going to ask you is, like, whenever I hear about ketosis, you know, you hear about the paleo diet. Like, okay, sure. that makes sense. You know, back when Neanderthals were eating meat and nuts or whatever. Like, there's right? something to it. There's Good luck growing your own cow in your backyard. That's what I would tell you. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, that like, <laughs> break it down for, like, because to me it seems a little complicated, right? That you need to go through these different series of events and diets to get you where you need to be and get in ketosis and then maintain ketosis. Um, and so I'm always like curious. I don't know. I guess my, my natural inclination is that usually I feel like things just kind of make sense, right? Like, sure. You know, but I'm also open to the fact that the things that make sense to me may not be correct since I've been programmed and trained, you know, for 38 years. Bread but, makes sense, right? It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Bread, we know it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. So, um, other, yeah, we'll yeah. go ahead. Yeah. yeah, no, well, so, so the nutritional ketosis started, um, as a medical treatment for kids with epilepsy. What was learned was if, you removed glucose from the brain, its seizure threshold increases dramatically. Yeah. They won't, they will not seize. So in kids that have two or three seizures a day, you just quit feeding them carbohydrates. They don't have any more seizures. You give them one bite of a cupcake and they have a seizure. Yeah. And so that fact has been known for two, like, I don't know how, I mean, I'm sure it's on like stone tablets somewhere. <laughs> like it's Moses brought those with the Ten Commandments. I, I can't cite that <laughs> as a reference source, but it's old. It hit the sport performance world when Navy SEALs and U.S. Navy divers were having seizures underwater in high oxygen environments because uh, the worst thing you can do is put glucose in a high oxygen environment seizure threshold is really low, man. And those guys would seize underwater, which of course is fatal. Yeah. That's it's, a, it's a major freaking, it's a major problem. Yeah. And so, um, at the time they didn't want to take carbohydrates away from these Navy SEALs who are professional athletes because they were taught by the same people I was taught by an undergrad that you had to have carbs for athletic performance. You had Carbon. to have it. Dude, pasta before the, like that whole thing. Yeah. And so they were actually doing exogenous ketones. They were giving ketones like they would drink right. this like jet fuel kerosene stuff. I've tasted it. It's horrible. Um, and that would put them into ketosis. They'd do the diet and not have a seizure without having to change their, their diet. Now, if you go look at the U.S. Navy SEALs or any of the special forces groups, they're all ketotic. Really? Yo. Oh, my God. Like, it's, yeah, because who wouldn't want to be able to run 30s? 362 miles without eating. That's the thing. Is you it's totally. Yeah. You don't have to eat. Yeah. yeah. You don't have to eat. No, you'll eat when you're done. Yeah. It's totally fine. And so, yeah, your mental clarity is inc- amazing. I'll have athletes that fast, um, and they'll do daily intermittent fasting of, you know, 18 hours, or some of them will eat every other day. Um, what do you think about that? Because that's what I do. You so. should do that. Okay. And I'll, I'll give you the research on that here in just a second. Right, but yeah. I often have to warn them. I'm like, dude, you have to eat. Because they become addicted to the fast. 
because the mental clarity is unbelievable. And so, yeah, you know, when it comes to people with dementia, if I'm old and can't find my car keys, like, yeah, I mean, I'll be back into full-blown ketosis and intermittent fasting. I don't think that the typical human today needs to be in ketosis all the time. Um, and so I'll tell you just kind of where I'm at today. Yeah. If I had to just describe where I'm at and, um, and also I don't think stagnation is healthy either. So just because I'm here today, doesn't mean I'll be there tomorrow. Right. So I, yeah. So we're always evolving. Yeah. So, I mean, I did probably a good year, maybe a, a, maybe two of pretty serious focus on nutritional ketosis. And, And I was in ketosis most of the time. And some interesting things happen as you move through your ketotic journey. Um, you know, the, the ketotic human you are at month one is not the ketotic human you are at year one or year two. <laughs> and you, and that's measurable. Um, I had a, uh, working with physicians was like the worst, <laughs> but I had a physician athlete who was convinced I was killing him. And so every day he, he was an ER physician. And so every, every day he went to work, he ran his own labs. And so I literally have this case study labs of this guy going through this journey. And, and, and so you can see what happens in these people as, as they go through the journey. Um, but where I've landed today is, um, probably five to six days a week. I intermittent fast, meaning, um, no food in an eating window of about 16 to 18 hours. Sometimes more, sometimes less. I really don't care. Mm-hmm. I don't get wrapped up in it. I'm not like, oh my God. Like, yeah, it's, you know, because I'm just, I'm not married to food anymore. My life doesn't revolve around food. So this morning, um, you know, I got up and I went to CrossFit at nine o'clock, I guess. And I didn't eat till two. Um, oh, and I'm 217 pounds right now, which is the biggest I've been in my entire life and with about a seven or 8% body fat. Yeah. Just for reference. Yeah. So when people are like, oh, well, you're a ketotic, it's to lose weight. Well, I'm the biggest I've been in my entire life. Yeah. Today, as I sit like right here. So just for whatever that's worth, like it's, there's a lot of like misnomers about ketosis and about calories in, calories out, how much do you eat? Like it's just, the numbers don't matter. Um, I'd say on my breakdown, uh, the mass majority of my diet is still fat. Um, it's fat and fiber are definitely the top two focuses. Like, you know, I mean, man, I could dump a bottle of ranch or olive oil all over, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever. Um, but the mass majority of my calories are, are fat. Tons of focus on fiber. I don't get wrapped up around protein at all. Um, people... Most people need much less protein than they're eating. I mean, we can see it in athletes. I can see it in people's urine. I can be like, <laughs> and it's not a normal urine protein if you're listening and you're a clinician. It's on the organic acid test. So we're looking at the metabolites of protein. And so I can actually tell when people are taking a protein supplement and using it as energy. I love doing, right? I love this. Like I'll take some top tier athlete. And, um, you know, they can do whatever, 30 muscle ups in a row, right? Or they're a, whatever, right? You know, that, that level athlete, like, you know, how much protein are you eating a day? And are you like supplementing with a protein supplement? Well, of course they say yes, right? Because somebody told them that they're supposed to. I'm like, right. okay, what are you doing with it? Like, so you drink the protein, 
And then what happens? Well, it's the building blocks of muscle and look at yeah, me, I'm ripped. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm like, okay, here's your output, your metabolic output. You used it as energy. You'd have been better off with a stick of butter. Wow. Like you're not building anything with it. You, you've used it as an energy source. It's gone. And it's not a very efficient one, right? Like, yeah, so we can, we can see it. So I don't really get wrapped up around protein. Um, and I keep my carbs. Like I just, I don't really focus on the number anymore because I've kind of realized that it really doesn't matter. If I had to guess, I'd say on a typical day, I'm anywhere from like 50 to 150 grams of carbs, which is like an eighth of the standard American diet. Just to put that in reference, like when I think so of what kind of carbs are you eating if you're not eating bread? Man, it's like the it's like the breading on the yeah. wings and more yeah. chicken tenders. Yeah. You know the uh, the occasional is that, is that your cheat or it just doesn't time? matter? No, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You get everything else right, and then you. Can I'm gonna fast in the morning. I'm gonna go work out or ride or whatever. I'll be in ketosis. You don't have to stay in ketosis to have the benefits of ketosis. Uh. Even these periodic dips into nutritional ketosis seem to have much of the same benefit. And this is kind of where I was going with the research. When they do these studies in mice, um, if you, know, you can take two, two rat pop or mice populations, give them the exact same number of calories, but allow group A to graze feed. So they can eat whatever they want, yeah. but they're all, they only have access to the same number of calories as group B, but in group B, they get one meal a day. The group that eats all day, even though it's the same number of calories, are all fat and have heart disease and cancer. Yeah. The group that only eats one time a day, they're all lean and ripped and can run on a little wheel like eight times longer than group A. And the only thing that they changed was their feeding schedule. Same number of calories. The reason intermittent fasting makes sense to me, I don't understand all the medical side of it, but just thinking back to humans, we weren't eating three square meals or three right. meals a day. Totally you know, right. Our, our bodies are perfectly capable of, of, uh, of being functional on much less calories. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert on this, but I mean, it just yeah. makes sense. And well, I, I started doing intermittent fasting like three months ago and I've done it. And I don't know if that, cause you said like five days, I'm doing it seven days a week. Yeah. So that's in the, well, that's the next piece of the research. So they took it a step further. And so the rats that were doing four days a week of intermittent fasting, and then they graze fed the other three, Yeah. they even had an alcohol group. <laughs> Those rats were still lean and ripped. There we go. Yeah, right. So yeah. if you want to have your kid's cheesecake or birthday cake or cookie at, Whatever, like, it just doesn't matter. Like, it really doesn't matter. Yeah. Women have a a special problem. So, Uh when I advise women to intermittent fast, it is only four days a week. They Uh need to eat breakfast the other days. They they have a thing called the Kespeptin disruption. It is horribly complicated. It has to do with basically ovarian health and protecting... My wife will be happy to hear that. Yeah. So, but they... So... They, they get the same benefit on a four-day-a-week intermittent fast, but on those other days, I really don't recommend them going over kind of that five days. Like, the research says four. 
it's it's hard to recommend to say five. The problem is it can kind of become addictive because it feels good, and they don't want to eat breakfast because it's dumb. You forget because they realize too. you one, totally once, forget once you get in the habit of not eating breakfast, you don't miss it. You, you don't, don't miss get it. Hungry, never you're miss not, it. You're just, you're just you're doing things. You wake up and you get going. You yeah. just go. Yeah. You don't have to cook food. You don't yeah. have to. You know, it's just. I don't know, you know what it's, it's like And the me. other thing that it does that I really like is that it frees up time. So those other, if I eat one or two meals, then I, I spend more time prepping and I care more about that food. And then that food, I want it to be good. Yes. Me. You know, like whenever I eat, I'm like, okay, I need some nutrients. My body. You can tell. Yeah. Your body. You, and, and then you eat it and you're like, okay, yeah. check. I feel it. It feels great. You know. It was, um. On the divide, I rode from Pinedale, Wyoming. I skipped Atlantic City, which is, I may be the only divide racer ever in the history of the divide <laughs> to skip Atlantic City. It's um, your other record. But rode all the way to the Brush Mountain Lodge last year or year before when I was on the divide when I got sick. Because um, I was just riding the Salida just to catch a ride home. Um, but I did that whole section without a resupply. Like the whole Wyoming Basin, like nothing, no, it didn't matter. Like, that, well, that's one thing I'm interested. Is that safe? Because I do that I to an help. extent, not like that, but like, I mean, it. I your, don't need it. Your body like, has plenty of reserves. Dude, to, you, yeah, like, yeah. It's just this weird thing we have where we're addicted to food, and we have this thing that we're and people don't. I have to eat. I have to eat. I have to eat. And you're thinking about, okay, what's in that what, town? I got to eat. What is the addiction? What is it? Well, yeah, so your body doesn't have the machinery to, to utilize fat, mm-hmm. so you're at a disadvantage. It's not a micronutrient deficiency. Your liver, if it's healthy, stores almost everything that you need. You'll be fine. You can eat later. Um, so it's really a hormonal addiction to rate high insulin levels. Insulin's a hormone. Yeah. And every hormone's connected. And... So that just, oh my God, I have to get to the next town to eat. That's coming from a very deep-rooted hormonal response. You, you can see it. You can measure it. Yeah. I One thing that I find enjoyable and I relate it to bikepacking in that, you know, bikepacking is a way for me to push myself and to kind of find limits physically. Um, I do the same with fasting where I'm, you know, I enjoy... Uh, you get addicted to it. You know, you're like, all right, yeah. what can my body do? What, yeah. what is this body really capable of doing? A lot more than most people. A lot more. Yeah. And, and that's kind of, that's the thing that I, I find really uh, fascinating about the whole process. And we talked about a little bit earlier for you as well, where you're going back from, you know, you, you've done a lot of different kind of writing. You're getting into CrossFit. You do a lot of different things, but I mean, you're always trying to sharpen that, the tip of the spear and, and yeah. make it better and get the most out of that body that you can and help other on, people doing know. it and stuff. So, well, um, I think it's safe <laughs> to say that it, there is not enough time and, you know, whatever to, to go over everything that, oh, you know, yeah. we could possibly talk about. Um, but the things we did talk about, I think are really important and I appreciate you so much taking the time to, uh, yeah, sit down with me and hopefully people will, um, resonate with that. And if someone wants to find you, get a hold of you, talk to you more about all this fun stuff, where do they find you? The best way is just shoot me an email direct, but Billy at InvictusCycling.com. Yeah. Um, website's okay, but I hate it. I heard it was down the other day. I haven't messed with it. I don't know. Um, 
Low but tech. that's the best way is totally yeah yeah affiliate invectus okay perfect man well dude you're an animal thank yeah. you for doing everything that you're doing and uh yeah educating people i think it's fascinating and i'm excited that i got to sit down and talk to you tonight it's good times we'll have to do it again when there's questions or specific yeah we'll do it again after maybe the grand gravel we'll uh we, maybe we'll get hal and indy and everybody in we need to like do a grand group. gravel pre-show i would love to we can make that happen we got to do that at the Done. dinner thing the night before Done. <laughs> all right man. it's that easy all right man thank you all right hope you guys enjoyed that i know i sure did if you have any questions for billy rice please send them to me uh, you can find me on instagram at bikes or death and uh, just shoot me a message because we're definitely going to do another one of these. Like I said, we just barely scratched the surface. There's so much more we can talk about. Um, and just listen back through it. I- I've already thought of like a million other questions I wish I would have asked them. So, yeah, get those to me. And if you like the show, you like this type of content and want to support it, please subscribe on iTunes. Uh, leave a review there as well. And uh, if you really, really like it, you can find me on Patreon at Bikes or Death. Uh, your contributions are appreciated and they directly impact the production quality and my ability to do these. So uh, thanks again to everyone and I'll be back soon.